With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. We have a jam-packed show tonight, Bill. We have uh, a few Condro folks joining us for the first part of the show, and then we're going to jump in with Greg Maxwell, and I think later we might even have a special visitor. Are you ready to go, Bill? This is going to be crazy. Uh, Did you have trouble getting into the studio today? I mean, uh, you know, last uh, month we had to deal with trooper security guards, and today pull up to the studio and there's all these Maxwell autograph hounds on their book signed. Agreed. I'm glad uh, Greg took his helicopter to the studio. That way you and I didn't have to fight through the traffic to get here today. Well, I'm glad I had back uh, special access getting to the back because I wouldn't want to try to fight that crowd. Definitely, definitely. Hopefully uh, Greg's not worn out from signing all those autographs out front. I know it hasn't been too hot here at the GTP Keeper Radio uh, Studios, um, so I don't think weather may have uh, caused any fatigue today, but I doubt he'll be signing any more autographs tonight. Uh, I think you're right. I think he's uh, hunkered down and settled, settling in. So tell me, Bill, what's going on down in Texas? Um, everything is uh, it's good down here, like uh, kind of on the East Coast. We're having fantastic end-of-July weather. Never seen temperatures uh, that I can remember down here this low. We were in the high 80s today. Very unusual for almost August 1st. We're usually 100 degrees every day. So uh, we're, we are good here. And uh, how, about, how about on your end? Same thing. Very cool, unusually cool. I think uh, yesterday my high temp uh, was 68 degrees, and the nighttime oh low gosh. was 57. So. It's uh, fall weather, though I'm not ready for fall weather. It can be hot and summer-like that, uh, that's, until that's until condor breeding, uh That's condor breeding weather, isn't it? It is. It is. 
Well, speaking of, don't didn't you have a recent uh, nice female ovulation within the last couple of weeks? I did. I had a female ovulate uh, a week or so ago, so I'm pretty excited. That'll be this will be the first time that I've had a, a pair that I, both the male and the female, came from a pairing that I did. So uh, that that's a, a milestone for me. Um, and uh, you had some good news. I had some very good news. I was actually able to um, uh, incubate and hatch my first clutch of green tree pythons. It was uh, uh, very special uh, for me. It was a small clutch. It's a small female. Uh, they were both a Rue-type parents. And um, it was uh, thanks to a lot of the members uh, of the MVF, the Morelia Viridis Forum, and uh, a lot of the contacts out there, it uh, was it was uh, relatively um, easy and very satisfying. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a stranger to uh, 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 breeding snakes. I've produced uh, many, many uh, carpet python clutches, and uh, the the actual pairing and breeding and follicular development, ovulation, oviposition, all that was. Uh, exciting because it was a new species, but it, nothing really threw me for a loop or I didn't get real emotional about. Uh, I incubated the eggs um, at uh, 87.5. I had uh, ball python eggs and carpet python eggs in the same incubator. And on day 52, uh, the first yellow uh, face emerged uh, from a six-egg clutch. And that was when I just kind of heart fluttered a little bit and said, wow, this unbelievable and um so i pipped the rest of the clutch and uh i had one that uh, did not come out of the egg it uh, came out halfway and uh had a big yolk sac but uh it just didn't make it out of the egg so uh set the other five up and what really really was probably the most special day of, of all of it was uh, the first feeding day and uh, getting a baby chondro to eat for the first time my heart was beating a, a thousand times a minute I mean I was just so I was nervous and my hands were all shaky and <clears throat> the first time that first one took a, a one-day-old uh, frozen thawed mouse pink I, I was just ecstatic and you would have thought I'd, I'd you know gone up to the top of uh, the Empire State Building. It was just, I was just so crazy. Nice. Very nice. Congratulations. Well, congratulations. thanks very that. much. Again, that's uh, yes. a testament to, testament to the, uh, you know, the community at large out there. I've got so much help along the way. So, uh, Bill, are you, are you going to part with any of the babies, or are you going to keep them all and see how they turn out? I'm actually uh, I'm parting with with all of them to be honest. Okay. Um, I it was a small clutch and I just had some people that really really wanted the animals and um, I I took a, a a step in your direction and actually uh, one of the animals is going to go to uh, Eric Burke who is one of our good friends over at Morelia Python right. Radio and. Um, so he's actually uh, going to get an animal, and then I've just I've just had several people, special people to me, that um, and I think every single one of these, with the exception of one other, will be their first uh, green tree python. So oh, good. It's, 
it'll be really fun to kind of spread that spread that along. So I'm sure they have a ton of questions about how they should cage their chondril. <laughs> I think uh, we'll probably be able to answer that tonight. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of when Bill and I decided to do this, this show, one of the things we wanted to, to try to make available to the, to the listening public is uh, good caging that necessarily isn't very expensive. And we like new ideas and... There's some, Bill, you've done a couple of neat little caging projects. I've done uh, an expensive caging project that works really well. But uh, my friend Ben Evans in 2008 shared with me uh, his cage plan and design where essentially you take a tub and you frame out the uh, tub and put in sliding glass doors and put your heat source in there and some perches and voila, insert chondro, a nice home. And... Um, he has paired with uh, Dave Brahms, and they're here to tell us about their uh, little venture to try to make uh, Ben's idea available to the commercial market. So let's bring them on and let them tell us about their exciting project they're doing. Hey, buddy, before you bring them on real quick, I just wanted to say something um, about Ben. I, I don't know Dave, but I know Ben is a member of the MVF, and a lot of listeners out there know Ben Evans. He's an active participant on the MVF. Uh, Ben's very knowledgeable in Condro Husbandry, he's one of the backbone contributors of the forum. Uh, he's one of the members, you know, there's a handful out there that seem to answer the same question over and over with a lot of patients to, to new Condro keepers uh, like myself and a lot of people that are populating the forum recently. Um, and you know, buddy, that one of our goals with the implementation of this show was, was to foster and, and grow the Condro community because we think the animals and the community is unique and special. And we wanted to share it with new chondro keepers. And the best way to do this is to educate new keepers and give them the ability uh, to obtain a healthy chondro without having to pay big bucks for the animal or or for the housing. So we both believe Ben Evans can provide this housing option for uh, economical green tree keeping. So I'm interested to hear what, what Ben and Dave have to say. Well said, Bill. Let's bring them on. Hello, Ben and David. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. How are you guys doing this evening? Hey, guys. Great, guys. Thanks for having us. Hello. Yes, thanks for having us. This has been here. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. So tell us about this, uh, this caging concept. Well, um, well you know, thanks, Bill, for the intro. It's, uh, it's, it's great to hear you know, such kind words. Being said, um, you know the, the, the MVF form is a great, great source of information. So it's great, great to kind of carry that torch whenever possible. Um, yeah, this is uh, as, as Buddy mentioned. This is a, a design that uh, I kind of came up with um, earlier on in my in my breeding stages of um, raising green tree pythons, and um, it's kind of a mixture of, of some plans that uh, kind of came out actually from Greg Maxwell. Uh, ironically, he's going to be on the on the program here tonight, but um, taking his this case is on a step forward with um, with a, a different uh, kind of a different alterations to it, um, but making something that's it's decorative and and nice uh, and has aesthetics to, to fit into a nice nice display, but also has all the characteristics of what you need to, uh, to keep keep a green tree python ha- healthy and happy and, and breed ready. So 
so uh, after uh, after having these uh, cages put together for quite some time, David actually uh, mentioned to me that he he had done something a little bit different. My my frames were actually made out of wood, and he's actually taken that one step further and made them out of uh, out of some PVC type molding. And uh, from that point forward, he's he's um, been able to make it uh, into something that's a little bit more. Uh, a little bit, a little bit uh, more prepared for um, for commercial. It's kind of viable to, to be made commercially and and shipped out as a kit. So um, that's I'll kind of let him describe on how he kind of came to that uh, to that step in the process and um, and what we're what we're doing from there. So, David, if you want to go ahead and, and take over. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I stumbled across uh, Ben's uh, cage idea when I first joined the MVF and. And it really struck me as uh, an extremely cool idea to take something that um, is readily available and inexpensive, like tubs um, and, and totes that you can get at any of the big box stores, and and then convert them into a, a functional uh, enclosure. And uh, I I like tinkering with caging almost as much as I like keeping the animals. And uh, I you know tried to come up with some designs of my own. I kept going back to Ben's idea, and I was like, you know, simple is where it's at. And uh, Ben uh, has a, a fantastic idea. It works really well. And uh, so I decided to put a few of them together uh, for myself. And uh, like Ben had said, I, I uh, constructed the frames out of PVC. And after I uh, had done that, uh, I was really pleased with the results. They they looked good and they were very easy to put together. And, and I thought, you know, hey, this might be a good idea to make available for people if, um, you know, you don't have the tools available to uh, to cut all this material and and, and or if you're not uh, extremely handy, we figured it might be a good idea to to make these as a kit. And um, so that's what we're attempting to do now. Um, and uh, basically. What we've done is we identify a, a readily available storage container, um, and we design a frame that fits for that specific one. And uh, so everything's pre-cut, pre-drilled, and we install the glass track uh, on the frame. So when you receive it, all you have to do is screw it together and mount it to the box that you go and, and purchase at a store local to you. And uh, and then it's as simple as getting a couple panes of glass cut to put in for the sliding doors, and you're done. Um, and you can you can get a very sizable uh, enclosure for pretty cheap money. And uh, I, I I think it's a great idea. Dave, I, I was shocked to see one of your models. I, I guess maybe it's a test model. Is massive. It's it's 38 inches in width and almost 20 inches in depth and height, that, that's, that's a huge cage. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's one of the largest totes, I think, that Sterilite um, sells. Uh, I believe it's you know, technically a 50-gallon uh, tote. And uh, when I put the frame on, I was like, boy, that cage, <laughs> that would work <laughs> great for a lot of animals. Oh, my goodness, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was asking Buddy, and, and he – he told me the answer, but I'll ask you uh, anyway so the listening audience can, can hear. What can you do? What are the heat options uh, in, in, in your guys' setup in those big totes? What, if you want to sure. do you know. Yeah. Uh, I know um, for the larger sizes, and, and you can look on Ben's website as well, you can see he's using radiant heat panels uh, for his condos. 
And, um, you know, these totes are uh, made of the same material that are used in all the little shoe boxes and whatnot that people use in snake racks. Um, so heat tape and those sort of things would work uh, equally well. Um, so it, it's really up to the, uh, the person who, who gets it to, you know, decide which, which avenue works best for them. Um, I use ambient room heat, um, but, you know, the, what's great about these is they're, they're very functional. Um, you know, you can play around with the design and modify it any way you see fit. And, you know, say you hack up the box a little too much and you don't like the way it came out, you can go get another box for $10 <laughs> and uh, mount the frame back to it. Fantastic. Very versatile. I got on your website, and uh, now might be a good time. I know we've uh, linked it to the GTP Keeper uh, Radio Facebook page, but if you guys want to give a shout-out to the website that people can go and, and look up. Sure. Uh, currently what we have now is just a landing page that's, that's on my current website, gtpfan.com forward slash DIY caging. Um, or DIY cage kit. I'm actually not really familiar with um, what I set up there, but uh, at any rate, I think that you know, the, the good part about the versatility of those tubs um, is that you can basically decorate and equip them with whatever type of um, whatever type of implements that you may need, whether it's radiant heat panels or perches that attach to the side or lighting that goes uh, inside or anything along that line. Um, you can certainly you know, do uh, do with it as as needed, and it's very easy to install any of those items um, you know, with with basically a screwdriver and uh, any set of wood screws will go right through that plastic pretty easily. And you know, of course, you could use a drill um, to to make any sort of holes or or cuts with a uh, with an exacto knife. So the tools that are required to basically modify and customize this caging um, are really minimal. Most people can get for you know, five or ten dollars to get a couple tools together and can just do with them as they please. And that's kind of part of the beauty of, of using these storage tubs as the main cage body and just putting a, a decorative frame on the front that, that holds the sliding glass. I mean, I'm a big fan personally of sliding uh, cage doors. If anybody's had to feed chondros in the middle of the night, um, doors that swing open aren't always as convenient <laughs> as the sliding cage doors because <laughs> those guys can be... Uh, rather anxious to get fed. So so, uh, so I, yeah, I'm just a big fan of the sliding glass. I think it works better. I think it looks nice when you're done. And, um, again, it's it's something that not everybody has the, the tooling and the ability to put together themselves. So for us to be able to, to basically make a frame kit that we can uh, that we can ship out easily and inexpensively that, again, can attach to any tub, is, uh, I think it's going to be a, a pretty big advantage for people who, may have had some hurdles with, with getting the proper caging together for, for keeping green tree pythons. Right, right. And I uh, I kind of copied Ben. You know, Ben and I talked about this. I think we were at a reptile show together, Ben's ending chondros, and uh, during the law, one of the shows, we to start discussing caging, and Ben shared his idea with me. And I like Ben's idea, but I'm not a – I don't work with wood and – I couldn't make something square if my life depended on it. So I, I want a slightly different route. But with this uh, this kit you guys are putting together, you don't have to worry about that. It's already squared and it's pre-drilled, and you just pick the tub size and you guys frame it out, and and so it's getting mailed directly to your house, correct? Exactly. That's correct. It comes Fantastic. to your house and you assemble it. Yep. 
And uh, if you're on our GTP Keeper Radio Facebook page, uh, I just posted a uh, link to the DIY cage kits that David and Ben are producing. And I also put up uh, Ben Evans' uh, webpage for his cage, and you can see his cage is how they're framed in wood. Um, and if you get a chance, check out Ben's snakes too while you're over there. Uh, the cages, you know, they're really cool, but the snakes are much better. Well, thanks, buddy. <laughs> Fantastic. That. Ben and Dave, yep. hey, guys, thanks thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks. Yeah, All right, guys. It's been, uh, been a lot, lot of fun. Appreciate it, too. All right. Good luck to you. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. All right, buddy, it's time. You know I've been waiting for this for a month. I, ha- I know. It's... Uh, anticipation and you know it builds and builds and finally it's here so let, let's uh let's be, bring greg on but before we do um for those of you who don't know who greg maxwell is um i had the pleasure of meeting greg uh when he was toting cages around the east coast i believe his cage company was cage master at the time i was having greg build me um and he probably doesn't remember this monitor cages i was trying to read some monitors and i needed some big cages and uh i had greg Build me four of these huge monsters things, and he bought them out to one of the local Maryland shows, and I picked them up from him one no- cold November or December day. I remember it was very cold. And, um, and then later in life when I started building an interest in chondros, uh, doing a search on the Internet would immediately bring you to Greg Maxwell's website, Find Green Tree Pythons. And Greg also ran a forum at the time, and then he wrote uh, a book, uh, The Complete Chondro, and then he followed up with The More Complete Chondro. So Greg was all about getting the information out to people who were interested in keeping chondros. Uh, he was, he's, he is and always has been uh, a proponent of making sure you buy your chondro from a quality source, uh, using good caging, using good husbandry techniques, um, and he was willing to share that with everyone. And, you know, it was quite an undertaking to, to pen this book. But enough about me talking about Greg Maxwell. Let's, let's bring him on and have him tell us his experiences with Condros and writing books and running a website and a forum. What do you think, Bill? Oh, absolutely. I'm ready. Hello, Greg Maxwell. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. How are you, my friend? Hey, guys. Thanks. It's great to be with you tonight. Hey Greg, how are you? It's good to it's good to hear from you. You too, Bill. I guess the first thing, uh, first order of business is if people that have listened to the show before realize that the uh, music that Buddy played was not our our standard introduction music that uh, was played by Marshall Mendez, but that was actually uh, you and your daughter Melody um, uh, with a. A, a musical called uh, Spinning in Circles, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, my daughter wrote that song when she was about 14 or 15 years old, and we recorded it, I don't know, two or three years ago. And uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a great little pop song. It's got a good hook to it. Absolutely, absolutely. We enjoyed, uh, we enjoyed listening to it. Uh, obviously, a lot of uh, talent in the family. Well, 
uh, I always say I'm not good at very many things, but I try to become really good at the things that I'm good at. <laughs> Make, making you an expert. <laughs> well, I'm not comfortable being designated an expert, but I try to I try to do what I do with excellence. And if I find there's something I'm pursuing that I, I just don't have the skills or the talents to really do with excellence, you know, then but I'd rather not do it at all. Well, um, you're going um, you're gonna to get the opportunity to kind of introduce yourself to the audience. I would fair to guess that the vast majority of people listening to the show know who you are and know a little bit of your background, but for those that don't, um, I'd like to give you a few minutes to kind of tell us whatever you'd like to tell us about yourself. Um, so, um, you know, maybe if you wanted to just start with your kind of early uh, reptile experiences and how you evolved into chondros and just whatever you whatever you feel comfortable uh, telling the audience about. Sure. Well, um, I was born in 1957, and uh, you know, back in, in the days of my early childhood, there were a lot less uh, wildlife regulations and and uh, less of a necessity to protect habitat because there was a lot more of it and a lot less development. And so people that grew up, you know, in the season, in the 70s, we had a lot of access to wild places, pretty much unencumbered. And so I spent virtually all of my free time growing up outside and creeks and ponds and swamps and was always looking for old boards and mattresses and fields that flip over. And all this was sparked. I think I was in second or third grade. There was a abandoned run down field behind the houses across the street from me where I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And a friend and I were back there just fooling around, we weren't really herping. Uh, we didn't really know anything about herping at that young age, but we flipped over this old mattress and box springs, I think probably just because it was there, what do you do when you're a kid, you know, some there you flip it over. And there's a pair of eastern garter snakes under there, and my friend grabbed one, I grabbed the other, and you know, that was a, just an electric watershed moment in my life. My first wild snake was absolutely mesmerized. I'd been interested in reptiles earlier than that. I think I started off with them, you know, toddler with dinosaurs, had plastic dinosaurs, and loved dinosaurs. And <laughs> I used to have my mom cut out paper snakes for me when I was kindergarten age, and I would take a, a shoebox, and back in those days, we bought our shoes. Uh, they came the cardboard shoeboxes, and I would go out and pick crafts and line the bottom of the cardboard shoebox with crafts. And my mom would color and cut out a couple of paper snakes for me, and I'd carry them around in the shoebox. Like, I, don't, I don't have no explanation for how that got started. I think it's just something that I was born with. So when I found my first live snake, it just you know, set the course of my life to be absolutely obsessed and fascinated with reptiles. And I put together a small collection that grew in size over the years and fluctuated from, you know, a dozen or so to maybe 40 or 50 animals. 
And I started breeding a few things. I would also collect eggs from the wild if I would find my packed out back snake eggs and racer eggs and milk snake eggs that I would occasionally find. And when I graduated from high school, I played music for a while, but then got involved in carpentry from uh, doing a trim and architectural woodworking for a high-end builder in Columbus, I moved on to start my own business building furniture. And in 19, I think, 91 or 92, I went to a local swap meet in Columbus, Ohio, started in 1988 by Don Hamper. And I believe it was probably one of the very first reptile swap meets in the country. They had not caught on by any measure the way they have now. And so I, a friend of mine kept telling me, we're going to go share that idea. So one month I met, and I thought, you know, and, and I appreciated, I think it was uh, Dave's comment, yes, she had on uh, the den a few minutes ago. He said he's almost as interested with cages and cage design as he was with the animals himself. And that's been my case. I remember gathering firewood from building sites around my neighborhood when I was just old enough to ride a bicycle and I would, you know, ride home with these large, unwieldy pieces of plywood under one arm. Uh, the only saw I had access to was my dad's coping saw. You know, a coping saw has a real fine tooth, like almost a, like a little scroll saw. And it's designed for cutting coat joints in face molding where joints come together at the inside corner. And, uh, Many hours, I spent tediously coping, uh, sawing out case parts out of scattered plywood. But in, when I got to the swap meet, I thought, you know, that would be a great idea to make some cases and sell them. So I went back the next month, and I always had access to leftover plywood and melamine from furniture and kitchen cabinet jobs I was doing on my shop. And so I, I took, I think, you know, maybe half a dozen cases to next month's show, mm-hmm. sold all of them, and people asked me, hey, can you come back next month and bring me, you know, a half a dozen of this stuff, whatever, so I'm sure, you know, I went back the next month with a few orders and a few more things in stock to sell, sold it all, took more orders, and the thing just skyrocketed overnight. I had no idea when I started it was going to be anything more than using a few leftover parts you know, from the shop. And I think within about four, five, six months, I completely shut down furniture making, retooled the shop to mass produce reptile cages and racks, bought a 16-foot box truck, and started doing Columbus and Chicago swap meets on a monthly basis. And then in 92 or 93, branched out and started doing national shows. The uh, Breeders Expo, which at the time was home, Orlando, um, and uh, Mid-Atlantic Reptile Show, Marge, uh, Maryland, uh, a couple of shows in Pennsylvania, Pottstown, Hamburg. Um, I think some of these shows are still going, maybe they different themes and stuff, but spent five or six years doing that and amazed by the, the demand, the popularity, the demand of the Stage master, and I had one full time employee, and honestly, both of us were probably doing work of about two or three people each. 
And about the four or five years of doing that, we were just physically and emotionally burnt out. And we made all of our cases out of melamine, which is a particleboard form material with a water, it's not waterproof, but a, a water resistant thing on surface. And uh, it's very heavy. So you can reference the monitor cases that I, I made for him. You know, those things, you know, it took like four guys to lift one of them. <laughs> and the smaller cases, of course, you know, we could we could lift by ourselves or repair people. But I would go to the show, the 16-foot box truck, and you get a lot of square cages in a square box truck. And right. we would literally have the truck, the truck jammed. The only airspace in the truck would be inside of the cages. Yeah. Sell out for the bare wall, take orders. Sometimes I would take orders from the show, come back to the same vicinity the following month or a couple of weeks later, not even do a show, just meet people, you know, in the in the parking lot of a hotel or a shopping center or whatever, unlocating all day. This is crazy, you know. And uh learned a lot about business. It was my first really successful commercial enterprise. Making furniture is very rewarding, but it's hard to make a living at it. And so yeah. uh, I sold that business um, in uh, at the end of 1996, just really bush and wore out. And not sure what I was going to do next, but I was so tired I didn't care. I just didn't want to carry any more cages or drive a truck anymore. And so um, I had been introduced to Condros in, I believe it was the fall of 1992, maybe 93, yeah, it was 93, uh, at a show in Richmond, Virginia in December. And uh, a guy you've probably heard of, the name is Cooper Walsh, uh, was at that show, just at a, a private cellar with a little table of Conroe. And I, had, I think I had met Cooper once at the Orlando Breeders Expo, but not really a face-to-face meeting with each other were, you know, I had a, an interest in Condros, but I had had a really bad experience with green arboreal snakes. Uh, just, you know, to, to cut my teeth on arboreal snakes. I had bought a pair of emerald tree bullets of, um, oh, they're not the adjacent that uh, the other, <laughs> the other type I forget their name at the moment. Yeah, the card and I did old, and so my, my uh, short-term memory for some of this stuff fading in and out, but I haven't been involved for a while. Anyway, I had, had a pair of these uh, Emerald Tree Bowls, and both of them immediately came down with regurgitation syndrome, which is, at the time, was extremely calm and incurable. And I remember asking Trooper at that summer show, what I was needed to do with these snakes and the reserving because I knew that he had bred both three tree pythons and the animal tree bowers at the National Zoo. And he looked me straight in the face and without smiling and said, Burn him. <laughs> I don't know. I think I paid $700 for the fare, which is time, but a lot of money to pay for <laughs> And you know, I didn't know Trooper well enough to know whether he was joking or not, but, but I talked to him before this, and I realized he was curious. I uh, said, you yeah, know, it's incurable. The only thing that's going to do is spread other animals in your collection. You know, you just need to burn it. And so that was my introduction to green snakes to living trees. And so, you know, when I, I ran into Trooper at the Richmond show, he had 
uh, a trio of yearly green tree pythons. I think a couple of them were maroon and just starting to turn, and one of them hadn't turned at all yet. And, uh, you know, I love Trooper. Trooper has this fascinating ability to get people to actually want to get out their wallet and get I've never met <laughs> anyone quite like that. Usually it's a struggle, you know, you wrestle with yourself. But, uh, Trooper just has, has this uh, magical ability to draw your fun. And he, would, he kept walking by my stage table that day at the Richmond show with a, a clear one-gallon or half-gallon jar with one of the earrings in it. And he would smile at me out of the corner of his eye, just like Santa Claus and the old Coca-Cola, you know, Santa Claus. Uh, and he would just very lightly hold up the jar and, like, <laughs> not shake it, but, you know, sort of turn it back and forth so the light, you know, blink it off of it and I could see the snake. And he kind of, you know, smile, not really wink, but just kind of look at me like, you know, you want this and keep on walking. And, uh, he was teaching you. Exactly. And so uh, I talked to him some more at that show and explained to him that the only green snake I had ever purchased threw up and died. And he began to instruct me about the vast difference between uh, imported specimens and captive bred specimens, uh, about the difference between animal tree boas and green tree pythons, and assured me with proper care and husbandry that there was no reason to believe that the green tree pythons. And I was at that show with two other friends, uh, Mark Seymour, who uh, we affectionately refer to as Dave, and Phil Black, who's still a good friend of mine, who uh, is actually a barber now. He uh, owns a barber shop in uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania. Nice. And uh, so the three of us declined to purchase the, the Congress at the show, but that's all we talked about all the way home uh, from the drive there from Richmond back up to Phil's uh, house in Pennsylvania, which is kind of my case master headquarters whenever I went back to the East Coast. It was about an eight-and-a-half-hour drive from my house in Ohio still. And then from there, you know, I would branch out. He, he lived like literally 15 or 20 minutes from the Hamburg show and about 30 or 40 minutes from the Pottstown show. And then it was right down the coast, you know, to Maryland to D.C. and all that. So the three of us just talked nonstop about our need to purchase some snakes. And I think it was probably the very next day or maybe a couple of days later, I called Trooper back and wanted to know Snakes are still available, and so they were. And so the three of us uh, drove down to DC, and we each purchased one of the snakes. And I believe uh, the animal I purchased, female, uh, came to be known as Aqua Girl. And uh, yeah. an interesting story about some of the names of my snakes. Um, not many people know this, and I think some of the names are kind of corny sounds. But when I first started to build my website in 1998, it was really just the very early dawn of digital photography. And I did not own a digital camera. Uh, as of 1998, all my uh, pictures were shot with a Nikon film camera. So I had all these prints. And uh, another friend of mine, Tom Phillips, who used to run a website in Condor with and uh, he and I co-founded the Condor Forms. He was a tech guy. He uh, graduated from Dubai with a degree in computer technology, and he worked for a company called Software Architect. 
So he was building my website for me, and I was scanning all these prints of condors that uh, my animals that I'd taken and sending them to Tom. And, you know, this was early in my my days of capturing, and I knew almost nothing. And so I, I had to name the file something in order to save them. So I just made up these, you know, dumb names based on the appearance of the snake. You know, the snake had an aqua color and a male, so I needed aqua male. And I never really seriously thought that that was going to be the snake name. I just named the file, you know. And I just, uh, after, uh, Greg, I was just going to yeah. say, I just posted a picture of Aqua Girl, um, and I was going to let our listening audience know if you're on Facebook or, or you're on your computer, if you'll go to the GTP Keeper Radio Facebook page, I'm going to be posting some pictures of uh, the animals that Greg talks about. It's uh, it's just unbelievable that your very first chondro turned out to be a blue line animal that, that's that was called Aqua Girl. That she's just stunning. Thanks. Yeah, there's a and uh, there's so many you know fun old stories and everything. But I drove home with her. First of all, I expected that animal to die. Like this You know, I was I was still you know pretty. Uh, uh, traumatized by the loss of the, the Emerald Free Bowler. So, you know, I, I would go in and look at her, you know, like every hour to make sure she was still alive. But um, the day or two after we returned back to Phil's from Ripper's house and purchasing the animals, I had to drive the eight and a half hours home, yeah, which most of which was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And, you know, this was in January because the Richie show where we had first seen the animals was like the Christmas month. And I think probably, because I would have been home with my name with the person itself, I probably drove back out there to pick the animal up. But anyway, I ended up driving home in the blizzard. And I'm talking a white out, can't see where you're going, can't see the road blizzard. Uh, with this chondro in a styrofoam uh, fish knot. For those that ever worked in top of fish wholesale, you know what I'm talking about. And with some heat packs in there. And then halfway across the turnpike, I had a blowout on the tire. So I'm wow. sitting there in, in blizzard with this expensive snake, and I'm expecting to die under the best condition. <laughs> and so, along with PA turnpike at the time, probably still the case, there's like an emergency call box, but they're like every mile. So, I left the truck running with the heat on and started you know, walking in this blizzard. And I was about a quarter of a mile past the last uh, emergency phone thing, so I, I hiked back there and, and made an emergency call. I mean, the interesting thing is you don't talk to anybody when you call one of those. There's a thing in there that you know, when you lift up the lid, it says, just call the number. You're not going to hear anybody answer, but we, we'll get the call and we'll come to you. So that's not very, you know, hopeful when your night is is falling and you're in the middle of the mountains and in the blizzard with a blown out fire and snake. But uh, 20 or 30 minutes later, sure enough, the guy came and got the tire fixed and I did get home with the snake. But yeah, that, that was uh, a very traumatic introduction to my first condo and, and getting home safely. But uh, I forget where we were before I deviated into that story. Anyway, that was my first condo, and uh, that initiated um, probably one of the greatest 
Rudy Tree Python buying streaks in the history of man. <laughs> um, I was I would do all these reptile shows, you know, with Cage Master. And the interesting thing too is we had a a couple of uh, two way radios that we would use at the larger shows because we would unload uh, customers' cage orders they pre ordered before the show directly out of the truck. We would not all those into the show. So we had one employee that was basically a run. He would, you know, be out at the truck meeting the customer. If we didn't tell him on the radio to stay, you know, come back in, the truck would be telling him, okay, someone's coming out for their, you know, four boa cages, and they stay there. And it turns out that Trooper had the same brand of two-way radios when he was doing shows with uh, Eugene Bethesda the file off of the services. So Trooper could hear my conversations on two-way radio with my that's station for That couldn't be good. That's not good at all because, uh, <laughs> yeah, he started cutting in, you know, the need for buying more chondros. And when I had time, I needed to stop by his table. He had something I might want to see, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's a bad thing to finish out the day of a show with a large wad of cash in your pocket and available chondros in your chondro office. Uh-oh. So I ended up I ended up putting together a, a pretty decent size collection in a pretty short amount of time. So anyway, that kind of leads me up to 1996 when I sold Case Master. So I'm sitting there with this nice, you know, collection of Conroe, and basically it was a, a hobby collection. Um, I, I didn't intend to breed them just you know, because I wanted to. Um, by the way, congrats, Bill, on your, your first class. That was exciting to posting about them all meeting on Facebook and everything. That's just awesome. I well, remember those magical moments. Well, thank you. I uh, I referenced your book on more than one occasion, I assure you. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm just so grateful that you know I've been able to be in a position to help other people experience the same enjoyment, fascination that I have been able to experience with these amazing animals. So, yeah, I produced my first class myself in 1997. Uh, I actually had a class in 1996 that was a pairing between Aqua Girl and Computer Chondro, which um, was similar. And, of course, you can only imagine, you know, you have the anticipation of your first ever Chondro class to begin with, which is just, you know, it doesn't matter what the parents are, you know. Uh, Absolutely. So exciting, you know, to get eggs. And, you know, so I had everything set up. The eggs look great. And, you know, of course, you know, I I did not have a whole lot of experience. It was just my first class. I didn't really know what to expect or what to look for other than, you know, some tips that Trooper had given me and, you know, some information I managed to, you know, get off the Internet at the time of Reading-wise, there was not very much information available at all. So around the time that I anticipated that the eggs should be hatching based on the time frames that I read about in Cooper's technical papers, I had three or four technical papers that he had written at the National Zoo that he had copied off and given to me. So, you know, I, I began watching, you know, as the hatch date approached, and one day I noticed that the female was loosening up her coils a little bit. 
it was a few days early, but you know, I said I didn't really have much to go on. Um, and so I and I had her in a, a big tub that slid into a rack, basically like a baby tub that was for adults, one of those huge tubs. And she was inside of a ice cream, large ice cream bucket with a whole cut in the lid and sagamoth, uh, dry sagamoth on the bottom. And so I, I, uh, I got the lid loose and, and sort of, you know, prodded her a little bit with a hook and she opened up and my my heart just went to my feet. There was a whole stinking, wet mass of rotten eggs underneath wow. her and uh. she had... Um, blister damage on her belly from being in contact with it. And, you know, knowing, if I'd known then what I, I learned later, you know, I would have checked her progress along the way and been able to detect something going wrong far earlier. But, you know, at that time, I didn't, didn't know to do that. And so I, I pulled her off the edge. I gave her a warm bath. You know, the good news is she recovered, you know, really well and went on to produce other clutches that you know, turned out very well. But that, that was my first clutch in, uh, you know, heartbreaking. Of course, you know, you go through all the anguish. You know, what did I do wrong, you know? Uh, I've never never really minded making mistakes, you know, whether it's Conroe breeding or furniture making or building the cars. This is what I do now. So long as I figure out what I did wrong and I know what to do to correct it. So when I don't know what went wrong and I don't know what to do the next time and it came out differently, that just drives me right? right. I, I can't imagine more. I I can't imagine more people. I mean, you and and Trooper and and Rico and and Eugene, kind of the founders of Condros, had the biggest roller coaster ride of you know just imaginable. You, you guys had the highest of the highs and and, uh, and I'm sure the lowest of the lows. I, I just I, I can't imagine. And it was over a long period of time. You, you know, you're talking decades or longer. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've always told people that are getting into condo, especially condo breeding, and then you just have to be prepared that, you know, these, these snakes will break your heart sooner or later. And there's yeah. tremendous highs and tremendous experiences, but there's also devastating lows. And if you're not able to weather the low periods and the disappointment, it's, it's a difficult species to continue to work with. So. But anyway, I tried again the following year in a female named Joan Collins, who uh, that actually was her name. That didn't come from an uh, image file name. I need her that because of her rather nasty temperament. And I have an interesting story about that, too. <laughs> she was uh, the first female successfully uh, produced for me, and I'll never forget the moment. Had it in an identical setup, internal incubation, big, big toe, the ice cream bucket, nut box. And uh, I think probably in the meantime, Trooper had told me, you know, check the eggs along the way, make sure things aren't going bad, and I had done that, and everything on track. But uh, never forget the day that I looked in there and saw a little maroon head peeking out from between her coils. And, you know, I think probably, you know, they could have heard me on the moon, hooping and yelling. Uh, you know, it's just it's tremendously exciting and, you know, a, a vindication in a small way that, you know, 
what I was doing wasn't wrong. And I learned later, you know, you can do everything, you know, buy the book, no pun intended, and, and have it go <laughs> completely wrong. And you can actually, you know, not have any idea what you're doing and luck into a beautiful 100% hatch. I remember talking to a guy up in Cleveland, Ohio, at a, a show I did up there when I was still doing cages and Congress both at the same time. And he told me that he had paired a male and female together only for a few hours just to clean the one cage out. And he got called away, left them together, never saw them populate, didn't do any cycling, and ended up with, you know, I forget how many eggs, but it was 95 plus, 100% hash. And you're like, you know, how does wow. that happen? <laughs> yeah. And you know, my feeling about that is, is they're, they're just good, strong, healthy animals that are ready to reproduce and some that aren't. And, you know, there are there's strong clutches and there's weak clutches. And, and once you gain the proper experience, you can sometimes nurse a weaker clutch along and catch on to do well. And, and sometimes you just can't and you lose them. But uh, that's, that's, you know, how I, I cut my teeth on firing chondros and beginning to breed. I went full-time as a the breeder thought maybe I could make a go of it uh, as a full-time breeder in uh, 1999, and I produced six buses that year, uh, one of which was uh, hatched out on Calico Jr. And uh, I believe, if my memory isn't too fuzzy, that that was from a repeat pairing of this Peter Condro and his sister, Opera Girl, I think, um, beginning of yeah. If my memory has been too long, uh, <laughs> all these, you know, dozens, hundreds of animals and pairs and everything just sort of get one together a little bit of time. But that was an exciting year. I could I, six pluses and, and hatch out, uh, you know, uh, an animal that demonstrated to me that the calibers are terrible. I couldn't believe, Greg, I was looking at some of your lineage uh, information and in some years, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with the way that you named your animals, but it would be GM and slash and then the year and then slash the number of, of that chondro that you produced. And I saw some in, in the 70s and 80s in, in a particular year. For you? Yeah, I don't, yes. I don't think I ever I mean, hatched out 100 in one year, but I did have a couple of years where I, I was, uh, you know, hatched out quite a few. That's just uh, that's just insane. I, I couldn't even Im- imagine uh, what it takes to to hatch, to incubate, and then to get uh, seventy babies feeding. It's just incredible. I'll tell you what. You know, it's uh, I'm glad I was doing it full time um, because I you know I had the time to devote to it. But um, you know, I, I sort of after a while developed you know my my dating feeding regimen. It worked real well for me. I, I would set a timer um, because I, I would get a date to start to, to swallow a, a pinky and I would sneak out of the room and then set a timer and go work on stuff on you know, my website or answer forum posts or whatever. And uh, sometimes I would actually forget to go back and, and check on the baby in, in uh, early enough time that it, I would go down to find it crawling around on the rack somewhere. So I started setting timers up. <laughs> But you know, once you get the hang of it, you can you can feed quite a few babies in a 
you know, a long afternoon and evening. But, yeah, those first few times takes a lot of time. Well, Greg, we've uh, we've talked a little bit about your kind of early early years with Condros and and going through and acquiring and and then selling Cage Masters. Uh, do you want to talk for a few minutes about uh, you know you kind of came up through when the internet was starting to you know to get to get really get hot and developed? Uh, there were a couple of Condro websites at the time that you were participated in and then even uh, administered. Do you want to you want to talk about those briefly? Sure, yeah. Um, the the whole Internet thing was, um, just like you said, really, really exploding. And um, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the whole thing was really exploding uh, about the, the time that I was getting involved with, with uh, Cage Master and then on in to the, the chondro keeping and breeding. And it, it, it amazes me now how much, you know, technology still continues to, to march on. I'm, I'm sure that if I were still an active breeder that, you know, people my daughter's age, my daughter's 21, um, you know, she rarely uses email anymore. Now everything is, is Instagram and Twitter and texting. Um, right. But, uh, you know, when I first started... Internet forums were uh, basically not not in the form that we see them now. It was what's called uh, news groups, I think they were called. But right. you could subscribe to right. a news group, and then you would. It was really annoying. I mean, you you would get you know emails <laughs> from everybody in the group when one person, uh, you know, wanted to make a comment, and and it was just constantly monitoring email and everything. And then, so then when the actual you know, forum format that we're more familiar with started. It was a great improvement. And I remember um, being on uh, kingsnake.com's Python forum as a, a person who uh, was actively involved in keeping and breeding at that point and answering questions and helping people and sharing what I'd learned. And the Green Tree Python traffic so heavy that Kingsnake opened up uh, its own Green Tree Python forum separate from, you know, just the Python forum. And then I think later they opened up a ball Python forum. And um, I haven't been on King Snake in, you know, a long, long time. But I know at one point, you know, they had many, many, many different sub forums dedicated to different species and stuff. And yeah, they, uh, still quite active. they still do. Was, uh, I was quite active there. And then, um, you know, Tom Phillips and I, were you know, we got a little uh, frustrated at times with the lack of moderation on on the King Snake forum, and you know forum moderation is a, a controversial subject and a, a delicate subject. Um, but the the bottom line is, you know, when it comes to the internet, is you know literally anybody can say anything, and so if, if there's not you know some moderation to keep things on track and to um, dissect good ideas from bad ideas, then you know, it, may be, it may be fun, it may be really active, but as a tool to really pass on knowledge that a new person coming on can trust. You know, I, I've been on several 
internet discussion forums completely unrelated to snakes, um, and sometimes of a, a brand new uh, person. And, you know, you get on there and you have no idea who you can really trust, you know. There's usually a right. core of people that are really active, and it usually becomes obvious that a couple of them don't like each other. <laughs> and you, don't, you don't really know, you know, who you can trust and who knows what they're talking about. So Tom and I wanted to start a forum where there would be some moderation and some some guidelines, and we wanted to have, you know, really high-quality photography uh, without a lot of broken links. That was one of the issues in the early days. I think people are a lot more tech-savvy now, and it's gotten a lot easier to post pictures right. and stuff. But back in the early days, you know, you, you almost had to know a little bit about programming in order to even upload an image onto a forum and get it to show up right. And some of the forums just had tons of broken picture links, which, you know, we we found, you know, sort of to look unprofessional and annoying. And, you know, the bottom line is somebody posts a picture, you know, you want to see it. Um, sure. So it's frustrating just yeah. to see an icon with a red X. Right. And so we we launched the uh, the Condro Web Condro forums. We started off with the main forum, and then we added some, other forums, a breeders forum, a photography forum, and, and one or two others. And uh, we we thought it was quite successful and accomplished our goals. Um, you know, we we did butt heads with a few people every now and then. And I think one of the mistakes we made on that forum is um, we used a uh, uh, called EasyBoard, which is now, you know, several years ago, was bought out or taken over by a different different uh, provider, but it's it's still the host for uh, the MVF. And one of the things that that EasyBoard did is when you would um, edit a post, it would put in italics down at the bottom, edited by, and then the moderator's name. And about 90% of the time when we would edit a post, it was to fix a broken image link or you know, something of that nature. It was not to um, squelch an opinion that differed from ours or, or anything like that. Right. But, you weren't, you, but weren't, people, you, weren't editing, you weren't editing content. You were just editing pictures. Mostly. There was some content yeah. that was edited from time to time, but, but we always did it, we felt, in a way that, you know, promoted the, the goal of our, our board, which was to provide quality information that anybody could log on and trust. And we always try to work with the person to say, you know, could you restate this? Or, you know, we don't really feel that's accurate. And um, But, you know, we did reserve the right to change something if we felt it was just, you know, flat out wrong or being argumentative or, you know, because we, we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to repeat, you know, some of the things that frustrated us with, with King Snake allowing, you know, long arguments and fights to go on and on and on. So... Right. We did edit for content some, but it was in the great minority of cases. The vast majority of it was to fix broken image links and things like that. But but all the readers ever saw was this post has been edited by Greg Maxwell or <laughs> this post has been edited by Tom Phillips. And, of course, right. you know, people, people understandably uh, came to the conclusion that we were you know, editing content, and basically we were just using it as a platform to, you know, become the Condro Nazis. And, <laughs> you know, so when we finally picked up on what was going on with that, you know, we started to 
um, you know, make a comment at the bottom. You know, this post was edited to fix a broken image link. Right. Uh, like right. that. But um, yeah, I think um, when I um, you know, go ahead, just just a little a back step there. You know, if there's if if you're new to the relatively new to the reptile world, say if you haven't been involved with the reptile world for more than ten years, or even you know five years, if you're you know five years into it. Um, the reptile world was completely different before the internet. I mean, there was none of this. There's pictures of babies and pictures of parents, and um, there were price lists, and you called the breeder, and they would describe a baby to you, or maybe they would take a photograph if you were lucky and mail it to you. So the <laughs> the, the evolution of the, the information that's available to anyone now from anyone producing any type of snake is you know, if you've been around a long time, you really can appreciate uh, what technology has done for our for our hobby in general. So it's, uh, you know, like Greg said, going from show, you, know, you had to go to the show, you had to see a baby at a show, or you had to ask for, you know, someone to actually take a, an old-style photograph, and hopefully they could do a good job of it. So when, you know, Greg was, you know, in the process of having this stuff up on his site, and you can see the snakes, uh, you could see the you know photos of the snakes and the babies, and then that's kind of set the standard for what happens now, pretty much in not only the Condra world but also in the Morelia, the Morelia world as well. So, you know, Greg, I just want to let you know that that's you know what you kind of started is still carrying on, uh, not only in the Condra world but in the Morelia world as well. I appreciate that. Um, I you know I think that would have happened you know just. You know the the release of information just follows technology. So, um, you know, I I just you know played with the tools that were available. But uh, I agree with you. You know, and I know I sound like an old curmudgeon. You know, back in my day, you know, <laughs> we had to get our snakes from the woods. But people today that that are relatively young or, or relative newcomers. To the to the hobby, literally, it's a completely different universe, and in most ways, it's better. Um, I think the one the one regret that I have about you know the advance of technology is that so many people today make most of their herpetological discoveries on the computer, and right. I I feel such a uh, you know that I have such a rich heritage of learning about reptiles in the wild as a kid, you know, coming across a, a breeding pair of black racers, you know, under a piece of tin, you know, in a field, or, you know, collecting, you know, water sta- snakes hanging, you know, from the wild grapevines over a creek or a river, and, you know, uh, you know, garter snakes up at Lake Erie, and, and uh, just, you know, all kind of stuff that I learned as a kid turtles, frogs, salamanders, uh, you know, I used to go, um, and one of the highlights of my year was to be out in the in the swamps, uh, and you had to know the right ones to go to, which took some trial and error, knowing the right people, but to see the spotted salamanders breeding, you know, you had to go out at night, because nice. they're not there during the daytime, and, you know, with your flashlight, and trudge out into the swamp, and you know, it's cold, because it's, they come out very early, you know, a lot of times late February, early March, and you know the just the the magic of shining your flashlight down into this you know swampy you know murky, murky water 
and seeing the flash of a six-inch jet black salamander with bright yellow spots all over it, you know, swim in the light of your light. It just, you know, you can't, you, you can't replicate that on a, on a computer. And so I do feel, you know, badly uh, on some level for our, our young people today that in many cases just no longer have the opportunity to, to learn about herps in the wild like that. But right. uh, as far as, as far as the, the, the hobby and the business of keeping and breeding reptiles goes, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and it's changed, you know, a lot since I've been out of it. And I've, I've, you know, I sold fine green tree pythons in 2009. So, you know, five years ago and, you know, the whole yep. Twitter thing has just exploded since then. That was that was either non-existent or at the you know very very early stage of the getting started when I was in it. Um, I think today probably if if I were still doing it, you know, and I had an iPhone with a public number, my my you know text uh, you know incoming text would just be nonstop. I don't know how you'd ever well, get anything well. done. Well, well, Greg. I mean, you're exactly right, and and I, I'm I'm not a Twitter follower, but just my Facebook um, page and private message uh, and texts because uh, my my information is available out there, and I'm sure Buddy's the same way. I get uh, I get dozens of messages every day about you know right. questions about about reptiles, not you know not uh, obviously not just chondros but all sorts it's the the social media now is it's incredible and uh like well like you said for better or worse it, it's out there i think for the better um but yeah it's uh days that you you know that you had um the opportunities aren't aren't out there for the for the young keepers now yeah i agree with you i think it's mostly for the better certainly from, you know, an a opportunity to learn and, and have access to information, you know, it's infinitely better. And uh, it just, you know, the, the methodologies keep changing, you know, and now it's Facebook and, and Twitter. You know, back when I was into it, it was websites and email. Um, right. I used, to, I used to spend, you know, my, my working day started at my computer about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I would do nothing on on the average day but answer email until lunchtime, and then I yep. would work with the animals in the afternoon, evening, depending on time of year and what was going on. And you know, in the meanwhile, every so often, jumping back onto the computer to answer new email that had come in and keep up with it. And because if you didn't, I mean, I would end up with three or four hundred emails in my inbox. You know, and any time <laughs> right. I would go on a on a short trip. You know, uh, and my gosh, I could spend at least a count on spending at least in one entire day when I got back just catching up on mail. And uh, it was a great tool, you know, it was a great way to connect. I just can't even imagine now with texting, um, you know, how anybody would be able to get anything done. At least with a, a email <laughs> program, you know, you can manage your time, you know, you can store them up. Well, I guess you could do the same thing with text. But, right. Greg, um, obviously, you, know, you have. You have to answer your text while you're driving. Obviously, that's that's how you do it. <laughs> that's the key. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Greg. Um, we're already well past an hour into the show, and we're just getting started. So um, let's move on and let's let's talk about your uh, 
at least as far as I'm concerned, your most uh, prized work, uh, the book, The Complete Chondro and The More Complete Chondro. Can you, can you give us some background on how that uh, came about? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I had, I had been answering forum posts, both, both on the King Snake forum and on Chondro Web, uh, for, I don't know, basically since I launched my website in, uh, in 98. And, you know, uh, you have to realize when you're, when you're, you know, one of the people that answers questions, just like you mentioned, you know, Ben is so helpful in answering questions on the MBF, you answer the same questions over and over and over and over. That's yes, just, I've seen that. You know, that's just part of it. Um, I know I know some people on some forums that I've been a part of that were non-reptile. You know they they uh, get abrasive about having to do that, but you know that's just part of it. You know people want, it is, want it, a fresh answer. It is part and, of it. You bet. Yeah, it is they don't want to spend time you know scouring you know archives and everything. They just they got a problem. They want an answer. So the idea occurred to me in uh, I think 2001, 2002 that you know, possibly it would be a good time to put everything together in book form, and that way people would have a resource with, you know, the vast majority of the questions that we answered, you know, all the time on a daily basis over and over, put into book form along with additional information, you know, pictures, and it would just be a, a great resource. And um, I had drawn up a sample uh, it wasn't really a manuscript. It was a table of contents, an introduction, and I had like a one-paragraph description for each of the chapters about you know what I wanted to include in it. And I had sent it to um, one of the, the better-known herpetological publishing houses, and I received an initial positive response back from them, and they told me that their a uh, new acquisitions editor was on vacation, but she would be back in like two or three weeks, and they gave me her contact information. And so they were interested. So uh, I waited till this person was due to arrive back and uh, made, tried to make contact with them, got no response, and two or three more follow-ups, uh, just didn't get any response at all. And, you know, I'm smart enough to realize, you know, when I'm being told don't call us, we'll call you. You know, <laughs> right. so I... I sort of dropped it at that point. Um, but then I was at the Hamburg, Pennsylvania show, I believe it was, in uh, I think it was April of 2002 or 2003. Must have been, uh, must have been 2002. Anyway, I ran across a table that uh, was being uh, operated by Bob Ashley of EcoWare, and uh, I think most people know who Bob is. He's published a, a large uh, library of herpetological books, and they do a lot of uh, really nice imprinted T-shirts and hats and stuff, embroidery. And I saw that his little card, business card on the table said herpetological publishing. So um, I said, I see that you're a publisher. I have this idea for a Green Tree Python book. Would you be interested in talking to me about it and of course the show environment you know was quite busy and noisy he was busy I was busy it was probably the only three or four minutes I had been away from my cage table just to take a walk around had to get back so um, he quickly told me yeah send me what you have and I'll look at it 
So I got back home and uh, looked it all over again, probably made a few little you know, changes and additions and sent it to him. And he called me and said that uh, he thought it would be great and, and uh, wanted to go ahead and do it. So um, I spent that whole summer uh, working on the manuscript and, uh, of course, you know, working back and forth with Bob on, you know, ideas and progress and what I was doing. And when he saw the, the scope of what I wanted to do, he changed his mind from initially printing it as a paperback book to doing uh, a hardcover book with a dust jacket, which, of course, you know, I was just elated to hear that news. And I also uh, got release from the um, printing company to do the photography. And digital photography was really coming on strong at that point, but it was nowhere near as widely accepted as it is now. And uh-huh. so the the professional print houses, I think, still looked on digital photography with some disdain and, and probably in in many cases rightly so because, you know, the the resolution, you know, the megapixels were nowhere near. In my iPhone that I'm talking to you on right now probably has five times the megapixels in the little camera in it than the digital camera I used to shoot off from photography for the, my first book. Um, but I sent them some, some nice high-resolution samples. They printed them out. They were satisfied with the quality. So I got to, to do the photography as well as the manuscripts. Um, I was able to design the dust jacket. I mean, Bob pretty much let me do everything. And uh, the uh, release of the book came in August of 2003 at the National Breeders Expo, which I think at that time had moved to Daytona. And uh, just like my very first uh, clutch of chondro eggs that, that went so bad, uh, I had a really heartbreaking disappointment with the book. Um, the the first cases of the books were due to be shipped to the hotel straight from the printer. Bob had not even seen them yet. We each had received one advanced copy just so that we could, you know, look at it and, you know, approve that the color plates were, you know, true to life and all that stuff. But um, the first cases were going to be sent directly to the hotel, and you can probably fill in the blank. Uh, they didn't arrive. And I have people that had come, literally had flown from Italy and, and several countries as well as smaller in the United States to get copies of the book and to get it autographed and everything. And, you know, so they were disappointed. You know, I was disappointed. And uh, it was just one of those things, nothing we could do about it. So I ended up taking a bunch of pre-orders. And then, you know, I autographed all the books when they arrived and uh, mailed them out to all the all the people, but the book was extremely well received, you know, to, to my great uh, satisfaction and gratification. Bob Ashley told me that the book turned a profit faster than any title that he had ever published previously, and the book sold out its first print run uh, in about a year, 2004, and um, Bob and I talked, and rather than just reprinting it, we decided to do um, an updated version because, as you know, in the Chondro world, it's kind of like with uh, technology, uh, a year, a lot happens. And so, um, you know, we we updated it with more information, more photography. In some cases, I, I rewrote, well, I actually rewrote the entire book. Uh, I obviously used the first one as a springboard, but um, there was there was not any, you know, cutting and pasting of large sections in. I, I literally... 
edited and, and reviewed every sentence and paragraph of the first book, looking for ways to better word things or make improvements. And uh, that the second book, which I entitled Tongue in Cheek, The More Complete Chondro, uh, came out in 2005 and was just reprinted again, I think, last year. And I've just been been so gratified to have heard from Green Tree Python fans all over the world how much the book has helped them and encouraged them and allowed people to hatch out their first clutches without all of the trial and error and loss that, you know, plagued a lot of us for, you know, the first, you know, few, uh, you know, decades of working with these snakes. And so it's, it was, uh, I was, I was just a person who came along at the right time and was, you know, able and willing to step in and take that task on. And I tried to do it, you know, with, with excellence and quality and, um, the, the results and the response I've gotten from people has just really been gratifying. Well, you, you certainly did that, Greg, and, and I did not read the original book. I have just read The More Complete Chondro, and what's amazing about the book is that it's, it, it's a large book. Uh, it contains a lot of information, but it reads like a novel. I mean, it's not like a research book where you pick it up and you look for the chapter or the page that tells you about hatching or feeding you pick it up and it reads more like a story which is i think the probably the most special um characteristic of the book right i've heard that from a lot of people um i I frequently am told you know you know it's like i'm sitting in their living room talking to them as they read it and um you know that was that was kind of my goal um i there were there were a few uh, you know academic minded individuals who were a little bit harsh in their reviews of the book because it did not include uh, a lot of footnotes and a lot of the things that you would expect in you know more of a a um, you know research type book. Um, right. But I'll be honest with you, my 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 model and and the the you know person that I had in mind when I was writing was Carl Caulfield. Um, his two books, Snakes and Snake Hunting and Snakes the Keeper and the Kept, were, you know, my two Bibles growing up. And I I probably read both of those books, you know, gosh, probably a dozen times each over the years, and they just so captivated me. And I I was, uh, you know, quite quite taken by Caulfield's style of writing and the fact that he made you feel like you were there with him and so right. I, I really wanted to emulate that in, in my style and make it a very readable book without bogging it down with a lot of footnotes and that type of thing, but at the same time still making it, you know, educational and, and factual. Right, right. It's definitely, both of the books are definitely a must-read, whether you keep Green Tree Pythons or not. I think uh, if you're not taking the time to read those books, um, there's information for everyone in there. It's very well written, it, it, you know, and it's actually spawned a, a whole uh, following of books. There's the, the complete ball python, the complete carpet python, the complete liasis. I'm sorry, Anteresia. So there's there's all these books now that have taken your format, Greg, and and tried to, you know mimic what you've done which is great i mean it's and you know 
like I said, even if you don't keep green tree pythons, you should have both of those books, not one or the other, but both. So, Bill, I expect you to, to have that within the next week or so, the, the, the complete conjure. Um, I got lucky. Greg actually autographed my complete conjure book. Um, and, of course, when the more Mine complete too. conjure came out, I, I had to have it. I mean, you just can't. It's a bigger book. Oh, you have the, Who oh, you have the, oh, buddy, you have the original? You have the original autograph? I have both. Yes, nice. I do. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. So, yep, yep. So, One thing uh, I tried to do in the book that I think, you know, I agree with you that even if you're not a snake person, and uh, a lot of my, you know, friends and family who are non-snake people, you know, I, they've asked to see the book, and I always tell them, you know, well, get ready. It's, you know, more than you ever wanted to know about a green tree python. But... <laughs> One thing I tried to do in the book was I tried to impart a a um, respect for for quality carries through in every aspect of life. You know, it doesn't matter if you know you work with snakes or you're a school teacher or you're a, a full time mom or you know a sanitation worker. You know, everything that anybody does, if it's done you know, with excellence and, and with a desire to truly serve others, you know, then then that's a great that's a great thing and a great life lived. And and so I, I tried to weave that into the narrative that, you know, well, that's that's a good way to approach life. Right. Well I agree. But but you know, yeah, we both couldn't agree more. Let's delve into the book just a little bit, um, Greg. Uh you know, I, I sent you a preliminary outline, and, and Buddy, and we've all kind of looked at it, and you spent an enormous amount of time um, talking about locality-specific uh, chondros uh, in Indonesia. Uh, you talked about the difference between race and locality, but correct me if I'm wrong, your your focus, your projects, and your interests were... Uh, more along the selectively bred color morphs in chondros. Is, am I am I correct in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought maybe, um, in, in not to in any way diminish locality type uh, individuals that like those. I I love aru and I love I love biox. My you know my very first clutch was an aru type animal to an aru type animal and. So obviously that's you know where my passion lies, but but because of where your passion lied and your interests um, and all the progress that you made, I thought maybe we would just uh, you know begin talking about that specific part uh, and some of the projects that you were involved in. Uh, does that sound sure. good to you? Sure. I guess why don't we start with um, uh, and we'll follow the outline of your book, High Yellow Animals. Can you give the, the listeners maybe some background information on on high yellow chondros? Sure. Um, well, the, my first exposure to a collection of green tree pythons was at the National Zoo. Uh, when I uh, The trip that I referenced earlier in January when my two friends and I made the trip from Pennsylvania down to D.C., to visit Trooper and visit his home and his personal collection. Our first stop was the National Zoo. And we got there, you know, like at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and Trooper was still at work, you know. So we were allowed to 
come, you know, back behind the scenes and, you know, obviously we didn't touch anything, but we just were pretty much allowed to wander around and, and look at stuff. And I'm sure that by today's standards, the chondros that were there are, were relatively tame because just, you know, so much has been done with morph breeding. But I, I remember us just going from enclosure to enclosure you know, with our eyes bugging out and our mouths open, uh, <laughs> just, you know, in awe of Drool, drooling, these animals. Huh? Yeah, seriously. And the, the there were two uh, animals that were real standouts to me in that collection, uh, one of which was a blue animal that was just so blue, and it was on public display, that you could see it on the branch from clear across the room. Uh, it just, you know, was was phenomenal. And then back behind the scenes, there were a number of chondros that had different varying percentages of yellow, but, you know, there was one that was, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60% yellow. And at that time, you know, that was the only, you know, chondro that I'd ever seen that had that much yellow on it. And it just, you know, it was it was an amazing animal. And so, um, you know, when I when I first started acquiring animals and, and most of my early founder stock came from Trooper, um, you know, I I bought mostly babies and unchanged yearlings because I wanted to, you know, watch them go through the process of color changing and everything. And later on, I, I did buy some color changed animals from Trooper. I think um, the... Uh, the computer chondro, the the initial calico founder male. We'll get to that project, I'm sure, in a minute or two. But um, I think that was the first, you know, fully colored up animal that I had bought from him. And so, you know, I I was treated to you know a, a varying amount of you know animals that would develop an excessive amount of you know yellow or an unusual amount of blue or whatever. These babies that I was buying would turn and um, you know, uh, to be honest, you know, a, gr- a good number of them just turned out green, too. Um, you know, probably, right, right. Pro- probably a majority of them. And by majority, and I mean more than half. Yeah. Um, but you didn't, you, put, know, you, you would... didn't put pictures, you didn't put those pictures in, in your book, though. <laughs> Actually, I think some of them are in there. Um, but, but yeah, obviously the focus is, is on the extreme animals. Um, I had a male named Pygar, which uh, was uh, one of the first animals I got from Trooper as a yellow baby. He was a great breeder for me. As I I ended up raising up uh, a few animals that developed into the more unusual animals, of course, you know, my, my interest in, in those began to grow. And then, uh, you know, when I, when I saw the computer chondro as a... Uh, a yearling or a year and a half old animal that just, you know, electrified me uh, with the possibilities of morph breeding. But the high yellow project, um, actually, I, I sort of uh, got into some great animals uh, from that line um, just really, you know, by, by luck and happenstance. Uh, I ended up with a a female from the uh, the famous Tim Termese lemon tree line 
before I had ever heard of a lemon tree or even knew anything about the history of the animals. I just I uh, I had a guy that wanted to trade me this animal cages, and so I I don't remember the you know exact uh, details of the trade, but I traded him uh, you know a few cages for this female who was named Lily, and uh, Lily was a, a real attractive animal, um, certainly not not you know, all yellow, but she had a lot of yellow on her, and it was it was um, scattered over in a in a balanced way. So, you know, she was quite attractive. And uh, then I ended up uh, purchasing a male from the lemon tree line named Happy Jack, who bred successfully for me one time. He was not a real great breeder. Um, I purchased another female uh, from... Uh, the Ophiological Services Yellow Line, which uh, uh, was one of my early uh, animals that morphed out into something really cool. Uh, her name was Lemon Girl. And again, reference back to you know the, the name on the file when I scanned the picture and sent it to Tom for my first website. Um, <laughs> and so uh, you know, I I began one of the things that I. I really started to do that I feel it was kind of the next step in morph breeding is, uh, you know, a lot of the early guys, you know, Trooper, Eugene, um, Al Zulich, you don't hear a whole lot about. He's out of Condros, been out of Condros for a long time, but he was, he did a lot of work with Condros in the beginning also. Um, but these guys, when they produced a really unusual animal, they would sell it. And, um, you know, hey, more power to them. There's no, no, you know, right or wrong way to do, you know, anything uh, with regards to, you know, what you keep and what you sell. But I was of the mindset, if I, you know, raised up a baby or after I began to have success as a breeder and begin to hatch out animals and have, you know, hold backs and have unusual yearlings start to color change out, I didn't want to sell those animals. I wanted to keep those animals. And yep. I wanted yep. to try to start to reinforce some of these traits and find out if these traits were, you know, the the product of, you know, simple, you know, recessive genes or dominant or co-dominant or whatever, were the traits, you know, heritable? How would they be expressed in the offspring? Because when I when I first got into chondros, there was not really very much known at all about morph breeding and genetics in chondros. Um, it was not uncommon to see ads on the kingsnake.com classifieds, um, you know, blue chondro babies. You know, these are from two blue parents. You know, these babies should all be blue screamers. And I don't <laughs> think the person was being dishonest. I think everybody just assumed that, you know, if you got two blue chondros and you bred them together, you were going to get blue offspring. And right. same thing with, with, you know, same thing with yellow or, you know, any any other, you know, high white. Um, and, and as I began to have my own breeding success and I tracked the breeding results of others, I began to notice something, and that was, the results were extremely inconsistent. And animals that looked like they shouldn't really produce anything all that great sometimes produced really great-looking babies and yearlings. And sometimes animals that were spectacular-looking produced green offspring. And so this became sort of a, a quest that, um, you know, drove my breeding program and, and my my research and my efforts was to try to solve some of these mysteries and narrow down, you know, the the parameters and figure out, okay, you know, what can, what can we say factually 
is going to happen and what can we not say and can this you know be improved and strengthened over time and so um that you know with the high yellow project i just ended up acquiring some animals from some different high yellow bloodlines and my my first animals that i hatched out that turned out to be high yellow were from my termese female lily and i hatched out um uh, uh high yellow animal from her named Chiquita, who unfortunately never bred for me successfully. Um, another animal that was not uh, by any means solid yellow, but had a lot of yellow on her, and again, it was it was um, distributed over her in a really striking way. She had like a solid yellow head and neck with green scales on her face, and then a blending of yellow and green over the rest of her named Grace. Uh, Grace uh, produced for me uh, successfully, um, but um, those those two animals and a couple other ones from uh, a 1999 lily clutch, and I believe I bred her to a male that I got from a phylogical service, so either either there a trooper that uh, had some some uh, eoc blood in him. And one of the things I discovered is that your odds of getting success with high yellow offspring go way, way up when you introduce BOC blood into it. Is that right? And mm. BOC outcrossing seems to be, you know, there's, there's no guarantees with color morph breeding in chondros, but BOC outcrossing sure. seems to be one of the higher percentage ways of getting some desired results. And I noticed that when one of the parents was a BOC or had BOC blood in it, the instance of high yellow offspring or, or you know, better yellow offspring tended to go up and then that tended to be reinforced. And then later on I was able to hatch out some really uh, spectacular, nearly solid yellow animals. Yeah, I've, I've posted a lot of the pictures of the animals that you uh, just discussed on the Facebook uh, GTP Keeper Radio. So, Anybody that's listening and wants to see those, they're spectacular animals. Uh, boy, you just, uh, you know, those animals were produced a decade ago, and uh, you just don't, it seems like you don't see a lot of animals, even today, with the, quote, uh, progression of selective breeding in chondros that, that match them. It's uh, it's incredible. Well, thanks. It was It was a really, really exciting time to be involved with these projects, getting them going and, you know, learning. And the thing with chondros is it takes a long time to learn because, you know, you breed a pair, you get the babies. It takes a year to find out what the babies are going to do. Then you take those results. You have to wait till the females, you know, three or four years old. You breed her with another animal that you think might work. You know, you may or may not get eggs out of her her first season. When you finally do, it takes a year to get those babies. So, you know, 10 years is really not a lot of time to yep. Yep. invest in, in these projects. And because I had a large number of animals of a lot of different bloodlines and, and um, morphological backgrounds, I was able to have a lot of success with several different projects. Greg, at, at, your, at your peak of keeping and breeding, how many adult animals would you say you were keeping? Just ballpark. Probably around 40 or so, 40, 45. Wow. Wow. All right, my friend. Um, let's move in. Do you feel like talking for a few minutes about blue line chondros? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, obviously, when I saw that blue chondro at the National Zoo, 
uh, you know, I was like, holy cow, you know, <laughs> how do I get that, me one of those? <laughs> was that an animal? That, was that an animal that Trooper had produced? I don't know anything about the history of that animal. All I remember uh-huh. is that Trooper told me fairly shortly after that that the animal had died. I see. So mm. you know, I don't. I don't remember what line it was out of. If Trooper produced it, um, don't really remember. I know a lot of the early blue uh, bloodline animals were coming out of the. Um, I believe it was the Port Moresby area of Papua New Guinea, whereas today the imports are, are much more likely to come out of the, uh, the you know the western half, the Indonesian side. And I know that uh, Al Zulich, uh, or Zulich, I'm not sure which way he pronounces it, um, had some blue line animals that, uh, and Trooper had some of his animals and some of his early pedigrees. So I, you know, I, I really don't know where that animal came from, but I can tell you it was spectacular it was electric blue and um i i purchased an animal from trooper as a baby in 1995 that uh grew up to become uh my bluish male aquaman and uh he was a an animal that continued to get more blue as he aged and he didn't really come into his full coloration until he was about five years old and he wasn't certainly not the bluest chondro I've ever seen, but he was quite an attractive animal. And uh, when you you oh. didn't really realize how blue he was until you put him next to a green animal, and then he's you're stunning. like, oh, wow, you know, he's, he's he's really got a lot of blue. And I bred him to several different females. Again, you have to forgive me because the the years have faded some <laughs> of my my recollections of pears and hatch date sure. stuff, but I ended sure. up um, producing uh, another animal by the name of Blue Max, uh, which was an Aquaman uh, offspring who uh, turned out to be quite a nice blue animal. Um, one of the best blue animals that I ever hatched was an animal named Blue Frost. And yes. I don't, maybe you have access to the information if you've got it there in front of you where you're getting some of these pictures and stuff, but uh, I don't remember his sire and dam, but um, one thing I remember about Blue Frost is that he was one of the very first maroon or dark brown babies in the United States to morph directly into a blue adult without going through any green intermediary color change, and that's how he got his name. I, it was this, you know, dark brown baby that was approaching yearling size and all of a sudden he started getting individual blue scales and Mm -hmm. after a few weeks it it literally looked like you know he'd been sprinkled with blue dust and it looked like he had a frosting on him and he just continued to get bluer and bluer and bluer and um he was a a really great blue male Um, yeah you produced you produced him in 2001. I'm, I'm sorry, I do not have his lineage, uh, his sire and dam, but I, I do know you produced him in 2001. Okay. He might have been from Aquaman. I, I just don't remember. Yeah. It's just phenomenal. But, uh, uh, there was Darth Maul, who's on the cover of my second book. Um that was a really, really super attractive blue animal. I, I'm a real sucker for blue animals that have big yellow flowers on them for some reason. 
and uh, he was probably one of the best animals I've ever seen that uh, follow that particular color trait combination. Yes, we've had uh, several people uh, specifically ask to post pictures of Darth Maul. Ask you what? Uh, just ask for us to post pictures of Darth Maul in particular. Oh, okay. Probably, you know, one of the most fantastic animals you've ever produced. He was a wicked-looking baby. He had a, a chocolate-brown body with a red head and brown stripes on the red head. He looked just like the Star Wars character, which is where he got his name. Uh huh. <laughs> very good. Very neat. Very neat snake for sure. For sure. Um, what about Craig? Uh, it's. A, I know it's a blue chondro. But what about Pepper? Was Was she uh, a blue line chondro? Do you remember? Uh, Pepper was one of the animals that I purchased from Al uh, Zulik. Okay, so she was a blue she line. Was, yeah, she was from his blue line, yeah. Okay, gotcha. One, one of my that favorites, was Pepper, by the way. That was Pepper? Is that, yeah. Yeah. That uh-huh. yeah. I'm trying to see if I have Mother a picture of that. Mother of uh, Ella Diablo. Okay. I don't have a picture of her on... Uh, that I can post, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a picture I've got the rest of them, though. Somewhere. I've got Mojo. That was a Trooper Walsh uh, yeah. line animal. That animal was from, um, I believe, a female named Carolina, who unfortunately expired after that clutch, so that pairing was never able to be repeated. But um, that was uh, Mr. Blue, the famous... Uh, um, Tim Morris, male, I believe he's, uh, if he's still alive, um, he is. now owned. Yeah, by, yes, um, Tim, is still, Tim is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Tim and Mr. Blue are still alive. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Um, but yeah, he's, he's uh, Mr. Blue is owned by John Holland, and I, I know right. that uh, John and Trooper have both you know, had successful breeding projects with him, but that clutch that Mojo came out of was one of the most spectacular blue clutches as far as consistent, you know, blue offspring. Uh, just spectacular. And Mojo was, you know, a, a fantastic animal. He fired uh, at least two clutches for me, if not three. Nice. There's a, right now it seems there's a Rich Culver. I don't know if, if Rich was around when you were uh, still involved with Condros, Greg. But yeah, Rich, I know Rich. Rich Culver. Yeah, it seems to be. He seems to be producing probably the, that I'm aware of that's being made known to me, at least. I could say that. That's the disclaimer I'll say. But the most consistent uh, success with, with the blue line chondros. And, um, really? I tell you, yeah, it really, I mean, you know, I get a lot of questions about chondros, and one of them is, how do I get a blue chondro? Um, and, you know, I always send them <laughs> to someone, but then, I hear back from them later, and like I had no idea that it would cost that much. Um, <laughs> right. But hey, you know, <laughs> most attractive things aren't too cheap. So, uh, you, when you were working with your blue line animals, Greg, did did now were all your babies were they uh, red babies, or did you occasionally get yellow babies out of them? 
Have you ever had a yellow baby that, that morphs into a blue chondro? Boy, um, I hesitate to say, you know, yes or no, because as soon as I do, you know, somebody will remember an incident that, that <laughs> proved me wrong. I don't ever remember a yellow baby that I had okay. morphing into a blue adult. Um, I did occasionally get some yellow babies from blue parents, but the vast majority of them were maroon or brown. Okay. I think this pretty much is common knowledge at this point, but the the original baby color of the parents is a you know, large determining factor on what color offspring they'll throw. And it's really interesting right. that um, you know for the for the first you know decade or 15 years of chondro breeding, maroon babies were almost unheard of and considered extremely rare. And uh, it was, you know, Trooper who uh, started selectively breeding uh, specifically to get maroon babies. And, you know, by the time I started buying animals from him in the early 90s, he had uh, predominantly maroon babies to sell. And um, I personally like both, but if I had to pick one, you know, I, I like the maroon babies and the brown babies. So I tend right. to breed for that, too. And it just so happens that a lot of the morph projects and bloodlines I was working with happen to come from maroon babies, too. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. Right. It's uh, it's interesting, too. You have someone, people, folks like ourselves who are uh, chondro-savvy, I guess I could say, and we kind of drool over the maroon babies. But it's funny, if you take someone who has no idea about, you know, what I guess a maroon baby could become uh, based on the parents, and if you put a yellow baby next to it, they'll, you know, they'll stare at that yellow baby and kind of just ignore that, that maroon baby sitting next to it. It's kind of funny how it's how It's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely it's, correct. There's, there's no doubt about it. So kind of just ignore yeah, the, the maroon uh, baby. The beauty and the shock value of yellow babies is undeniable. Right, right. Guys, I, I, want, I want to take this. Uh, we, have nine, we have about 10 minutes left in the live show, and so we're going to lose our live audience in 10 minutes. But I just want to remind everybody that we will continue the show. We will be recording. Uh, so when the show gets dropped, uh, probably tomorrow, you'll be able to download and listen uh, to the rest of this because we've got – Quite a bit more stuff to cover. I hope Greg can stick around uh, for a little bit longer. Um, we've got Marshall Mendez who's going to call in uh, in just a few minutes when we start talking about the albino stuff. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Awesome. Uh, is this a good time um, before we talk about uh, albino, uh, Greg? Let's let's talk about your your baby. Let's talk about uh, the Calico project. Sure. Well, the uh, the Calico project, you know, was uh, you know probably the the project that I focused on the most as far as you know really trying to concentrate the genetics and uh, you know solve some riddles. And I got interested in that project when I purchased the animal that I named the computer chondro, and actually probably it should have been more accurately named the the computer monitor chondro because it was <laughs> the the pixelated appearance of the, the lower resolution monitors that, that we had at the time um, that just reminded me of the pixelated multicolored pattern on this snake. And um, Trooper hatched him, I believe it was in January 93. 
and brought him to the um, Breeders' Expo in Orlando um, later that year. I think I'm, I'm getting the, the time span right as a, a changing yearling. And I remember seeing him at that show, but the the Orlando show was the biggest, busiest show of the year for me with Cage Master. So I, you know, hardly had time to breathe. So I never really noticed the animal that much other than to just, you know, notice it was there. Maybe maybe right. it was 94 that Trooper brought it to the show. Um, but anyway, it was, it was a color-changed yearling. And so he had it again. Uh, the Orlando show was in uh, August, and then in, in September we did the Mid-Atlantic Reptile Show, and he had it there. And okay. he, I believe he had, yes? You still there, Greg? Yeah, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. okay. Sorry, did you guys lose me? No. Uh, no, we're still going. Talk about the Orlando show. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, so so the following month at the Mid-Atlantic Reptile Show, Trooper had uh, the animal at that show also. And uh, that show was much more relaxed for me, and I was able to walk around. And then I saw that chondro, and, you know, I was, I'd already purchased a number of animals from Trooper that year. Uh, and I, I'd started buying from him, you know, the previous winter. And, boy, I just, I had to have that animal. It just captivated. It was an amazing-looking animal. And, you know, he's still an amazing-looking animal, but you have to put it in perspective. You know, there's a lot of other really amazing chondras to look at these days, including a lot of animals that are very calico-like in appearance. There was nothing like that in 1994. I mean, you know, that animal was just completely in a league of its own. And uh, I think he had... I think he had a price of $4,000 on it, which was just like, you know, an outrageous amount of money to pay for a green tree python back then. (laughs) That was basically one of those prices you put on it so people would stop asking you if it was for sale. (laughs) Right. You know, if some lunatic walked up and was willing to give you the $4,000, then you would take it. (laughs) And I was that lunatic. And that's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Awesome. And I remember awesome. uh, uh, Trooper's wife, Ann, uh, came by my table later in the afternoon after I'd purchased the animal, and uh, Trooper hadn't delivered it yet. He asked me if he could keep it on display till the end of the day, but I had, I had agreed to buy it. I think I'd paid him. And Ann came over, and she told me, she goes, you know, she goes, you can change your mind if you want <laughs> she, felt, she felt so bad that I had agreed to pay that amount of money for a snake. She felt but sorry for you, it, huh? Well, you just have to put it in context for the time. I mean, it's not outrageous to pay four grand for a chondro now. Um, right. you know, but back then, you know, it was. I, I remember, uh, you know, I bought my very first uh, captive bred eastern indigo snakes. Uh, in 1992, maybe 93, 91, something like that, and I paid $300 a piece for them, and I think my hands were shaking when I counted the money out. Um, you know, this, this was, these are back in the days when we didn't have all these outrageous morphs and some of the prices that accompany them. So, um, you know, yeah, she, she just wanted to really make sure that, you know, I, I was buying this, with intelligence and, and not, you know, in some sort of a, uh, you know, chondroholic induced stupor and I was going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, what have I done? 
but uh, I I knew what I had done, and I was happy about it. And I went home with that snake, just ecstatic. And um, so, of course, you know, the thing I wanted to do was to verify whether those traits could be passed on to offspring. And uh, I bred him with his sister, who I just happened to have. You know, I did not know that they were related when I bought him. Um, you know, the, my very first Conroe Aqua Girl. But I bred the two of them together and got that first clutch in 96, which went bust. And uh, I can't remember. I think it was in, yeah, it was in 1999 that I repaired them successfully and produced Calico Jr. And I knew something was up when he hatched because, and again, it's very common now to have dark patternless babies, but back then there weren't any. It's unheard right. of. There were right. there were dark babies and there were reduced pattern babies and you know a trooper had some you know amazing looking dark babies but I had never seen a brown baby with no pattern and I'm like holy cow you know I wonder what that means and uh, so I, I you know watched him grow and he was a good eater and and uh, then he started to change and I saw this really weird granular pixelated color pattern start to emerge on him but the colors you know, were all different than, than the sire. Um, you know, they were they were brown and, and green and, and yellow and orangish, but not the intense yellow and, you know, the different shades of yellow and white and black and green that the, the dad had. And you, he changed you very slowly. You described him as uh, like an inverse image of, of his yeah, father. Yeah, it looked like a photographic negative. Exactly. Right, right. And uh, so, obviously, I was, you know, excited, but also, you know, filled with concern and wonder, you know, was he just going to keep changing and turn green? And, uh, but he, he changed into, you know, what he became and stayed that way. And, you know, of course, I was ecstatic. And so I had, I now had two, you know, males to work with. I produced the next Calico Clutch in 2001. Uh, with uh, my biological services, high yellow female lemon girl, and I produced a clutch from her in 01 with one of those sires. I don't remember which one, and then again in 04 with the other sire. Both clutches produced spectacular animals, and a uh, number of other uh, animals that I held back from that line produced, uh, you know, really good animals. I know a lot of people bought babies and produced spectacular animals with them, so. Um, yeah, that's a that's a project. I, I just I think even today when I see you know people's pictures on Facebook of calico line or calico type animals, I just think they're among the most beautiful and breathtaking of any chondra morph I've ever seen. Well, Greg, I posted a picture of Hattrick. Um, did, did you mention that animal as one of your productions? They came, I think, from Calico Junior. Yes. Yeah, he was uh, yes. from one of those clutches, yeah. And that, and, that uh, also Hattrick did to, not re- retain that coloration, unfortunately. He did not, really. Most of the calico line animals, in my experience, did retain their yearling colors. And, you know, some really spectacular animals were produced, but um, Hattrick did not. And hmm. uh, I actually sold that animal to a guy who basically did the same thing that, you know, I did the trooper. He showed up with the money. I didn't want to sell it. I told him it wasn't for sale. And, uh, you know, based on the track record of the project, I had every expectation that 
that animal was going to mature into a male that looked exactly like what he looked like as a yearling. Sure. And uh, so, you know, I, I named a price, and the guy immediately said done and bought him. And uh, then he, he ended up turning into a mostly green animal with a little bit of black and yellow flecking on him. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, life of life of a chondro keeper, isn't it? Right. Well, I would have felt bad if I was trying to market it to somebody, but I honestly did not want to sell it. And I told the guy, well, if I'm going to sell it, I have to sell it for what it's worth to me as a breeder. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. Greg, Greg, let me ask you a question, and I, I know I, I've asked this to you before, but maybe you could explain it to the listener. There, there are a lot of animals out there now that – appear to be, they look similar to calico animals, but they're not from the original computer chondro. So what what should those people be calling those animals? Should they be calling them tricolor or, or pixelated chondros or what what's the proper term for those for those animals? Well, I'm I'm probably not qualified to, you know, dictate what you know, people should, what label they should put on their projects. The only thing that I I always ask people to do was, you know, honor the, the founding animal and the name of the project of the breeder that put the time in to develop it. Um, and at the time, there was, you know, a tendency to put calico on any, you know, oddball chondro, some of which had bore no resemblance to the project. Um, mm-hmm. Other people were were labeling half changed beox, which can go through some really wild <laughs> color changes on their way to turning into more or less a normal looking beox. As they were labeling right, those right. as calicos. Calico. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I defended that that name and that project, but you know, there's more than just the Trooper Walsh blue line animals, and there's more than just the Tintermazy lemon tree high yellow line, and there can be, you know, more than you know one calico line. Um, I just think there there should be a way to reference the lineage of the animal. Maybe you know the Maxwell Calico line versus you know the you know Buddy Buscemi Calico line. I hope I said your name right, Buddy. Just close Doesn't enough. <laughs> yeah, close um, enough. You know, whatever. I I just you know the the bottom line is sure. just just be you know factual and honest and so people know where stuff's coming from and you're not trying to capitalize on somebody else's hard work in a right. way that, you know, lessens the value of the animal or their work. That's I think that's right. all anybody right. would ask. Right. Or, or don't actually mis- had a... misrepresent an animal. Yeah, that's still right. changing. Right. Exactly. We had a pretty good discussion about this on the MVF maybe a year or so ago. Um, someone brought up the question, you know, why can't I call my chondro a calico chondro? And, um, you know, the overwhelming consensus was, well, you can if it has a lineage that can be traced back to, to your work, Greg. Um, and if it can't, then it shouldn't be called that. You should call it something else. It's, uh, you know, it, it misrepresents the animal in many ways. And I think to say that, you know, you know, well, there's the Greg Maxwell calico line, and then there's this other calico line, or if it even is a line. I think it, you know, just use some creativity. If you if you're working with chondros and you you're able to produce a trait that's uh, inheritable, and you've been able to prove it through consistent breeding projects, you know, take the time to come up with an original name and not muddy the waters. And 
not only that, it's also, uh, you know, my opinion is it's disrespectful to the history of, of the condor keeping as well. We've we've done a tremendous uh, job of documenting pairings and keeping lineages and knowing which animals come from whom and, and whom they were paired with. And to bring a, a an animal in that's maybe not even been proven to carry a specific trait, um, I, I just think it, it historically it, it just doesn't sit well with me personally. I think you know you're disrespecting the history of you know something like the calico line, um, you know. And I, I you know I think that they should. You know, my opinion is they if they they have an animal that looks like a calico type chondro, they you know come up with another name and prove it, prove it out so that it's inheritable like you did, Greg, that, you know, it can be carried on to the offspring. So, and that's my opinion but, on it. Buddy, but, buddy, are there any other other animals out there that meet those those um, characteristics that you're aware of? I mean, I've seen other um, animals that look calico-like. I don't know if they've been proven to be uh, if genetic as far as the, the offspring. Right. But I've certainly I've seen, seen uh, like, I've seen some animals that people have shown that, you know, they don't have a lineage on. Um, and, they, you know, the question is, is this a calico chondro? And, you know, if you, I mean, I guess it could be, but if you don't have the lineage to prove that it is what it is, then I would yeah. say that you would be doing the chondro community a disservice by calling it a, a, a calico chondro. Um, okay. If you have the lineage and you can trace it back to the animals that have uh, you know, the computer chondro and Calico Jr. Um, in the lineage, and I think you could say, you know, it's maybe, and even if it doesn't phenotypically uh, present as a Calico chondro, you could say it has a, a Calico lineage or it's an outcross, you know, Calico outcross project. That, that's how I feel. Um, but I haven't really seen personally anything it comes really close to what the computer chondros look like, what Cal Juniors look like, um, at least to me. Now, you know, it could be proven wrong. Someone can send me a photo and say, hey, you know, this, okay. there's this chondro here. But personally, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it, Bill? Okay. No. Uh, I have seen some animals that I think that, that look similar to a calico animal, but I haven't seen any evidence that it's been reproducible in the offspring. Right. Okay. Right. Well, well, very good. That's that's fantastic. Uh, let's move on to the last um, kind of selective color more for uh, designer animal that we wanted to talk about, and, and that's the albino project. Uh, I know Marshall. I think Marshall Mendez is uh, he's he's holding uh, because I, I know we definitely want to get his input because he's been the most uh, recent person to have success with the project. But maybe Greg, you could give us a brief introduction into. Uh, uh, the albino trade in, in chondros? Sure. Uh, I believe the uh, the first animals were produced by uh, first-generation Maruk or, or Maruki, uh, whatever the correct pronunciation of that is, uh, animals that were uh, clutch produced by Tracy Barker. Um, Trooper ended up with uh, an animal from that clutch as well as uh, Damon Salcius. Um, Damon produced the, the uh, first albino from his pair. Uh, Trooper 
produced an albino uh, using his male and a, a pet female, I believe. Um, I ended up with a, an animal in my collection that was produced by Troopers Albino, and I was never able to verify whether that animal was in fact carrying the albino uh, gene. And uh, that's really, if people have asked me, do I have any regrets about, you know, uh, getting out of condors or whatever? The only regret is that I never produced an albino. I would like to have done that. But uh, big, big kudos to those that have, especially Marshall. I've seen some pictures of his, and uh, oh. you know, what a, what oh, a yeah. great project and what a great guy to do it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, well, with that introduction, uh, buddy, can you uh, can you bring Marshall on? I sure will. Let's click Marshall on. Hi, Marshall. Welcome to GTP Super Radio. How, How are you, you my doing? friend? Doing well. We're doing hey, Marshall. well. Greg, how are you? I'm great, Marshall. It's good to talk to you. Likewise. We've had a great show, uh, Marshall, and I know you've been uh, on the line for a few minutes, and you, you heard the introduction to the to the albino chondros, and in just a minute, I'm going to post a picture of uh, one of your one of your babies on Facebook. But why don't you give us a brief uh, history of uh, of kind of your uh, your working with chondros? Because I I know it didn't happen overnight. It, this has been a, a very long uh, uh, project for you, and you put a lot of time, a lot of hard work and effort into it. So why don't you tell us about it? Well, uh, it started for me uh, around the same time that Greg. Uh, got his animal from Trooper that was a descendant of the uh, VPI line albino. Uh, I believe the the male that Trooper bought from the Barkers uh, was a sibling to the parents of the first albino. So uh, I think it was Daytona 2002 or somewhere about there where Damon uh, had... um, you know, posted or, or announced that he had produced the first albino, and my first thought was, hey, I've got a possible head. Um, but going back a little bit further, I was at, uh, I think it was the the Mars Reptile Show back in, I guess it was 2001 maybe, and uh, went to Trooper's house and saw the, the, the babies that came from the from that original founder male. And um, I think Greg can probably attest to this, but all of the red babies from that clutch were really cool, um, you know, unlike any I had ever seen before. So I uh, had to have one and um, worked a deal out with Trooper and, and got it. And then, you know, that was before the albino had even been hatched. So I kind of just, you know, walked into it from that from that perspective. Uh, I think we would have paid so, a lot more for those babies if he'd already hatched the albino. Oh yeah, I'm sure about that. But uh, so so then um, so yeah, so 2002, I guess my animal was uh, uh, about a year old or maybe a little bit older, and um, Damon hatched his albino. And like I said, I knew at that point that I had at least a possible head animal, and uh, that's kind of when I, uh, you know, say that the project started for me. Um, so. The goal was to breed him uh, to as many females as possible and just hold you know hold back a good percentage of the clutch until I could sex them. 
and then hold all the females. And that's pretty much what I did. Um, his first clutch didn't come until 2005, where I bred into a, a, a pure fiat female and uh, held back a good many animals. I don't remember how many, but it was probably close to uh, seven or eight. Um, and ended up with four females uh, once I sexed them. So, you know, trying to get those females up to size as, as quick as I could. And the very first one uh, produced for me in 2011. And uh, they basically went one at a time each year since then. And uh, this year um, I got a clutch from the last female from that clutch, which ended up being not a head. Uh, you know, you probably not hatched two last year from a different uh, sibling female that, uh, that were albino. And um, this year, the, uh, this year's albino is actually from another, another line. It's from Versace bred to uh, um, a flex daddy pants female. So the mother of this year's albino is different than last year's. Different line, different, uh, you know, different everything. Last so, year's uh, albinos, Marshall, last year's albinos, were they, they were yellow babies, right? Or were they red? Which, which, which were one? your babies last year? Uh, one of each. One of each. Okay. And neither one yeah. of those survived. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Neither of them, you know, they were, ba- they were both terrible feeders and, um, you know, just it was an all-around weak clutch. Started off, I think I started off with like eight and ended up um, only hatching three. And the albinos were both, you know, I could tell from the beginning they were, you know, pretty weak and, you know, they both had to be assist fed. And the yellow one never did eat. I could get the maroon one to eat every once in a while. And then it finally, uh, I believe, it prolapsed. And uh, that was it. Uh, the red one just, you know, failed to thrive, never took off for me. So that was a pretty, well, we, you know, that was a bummer, losing those two. Earlier on the show, before you came on, we talked about the roller coaster ride of uh, keeping and breeding chondros. I'm sure that was uh, the highest and the lowest in the same year. Oh, it totally was. I mean, to see those things after, you know, you've been working on the project for, uh, I think at that point it had been 11 years in the making that I, you know, uh, dreamed of one day seeing one and then to have two of them and then, you know, three or four months later. I mean, when, when they hatched, I really wasn't even sure about it. Cause last year at this time uh, was this arboreal symposium. And uh, at the right. time, they were already, they were they had already been hatched. Right, and, I remember uh, I didn't even say anything about her at the symposium because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure. I didn't really know what I had. Um, I, I suspected that maybe they could be, and then finally, I think it was Greg Stevens suggested, hey, take a take a picture of them at night uh, when their pupils, pupils are dilated um, with a flash. And as soon as I did that, you know, you got the red eye shine back, and if you try that with any other chondro, you get black. Um, so at that point, that combined with the, you know, pink tongue and, um, you know, lack of, lack of black, that's, those are the three things that I really look for. And, um, you know, that's when I knew what I had. Well, and, and, 
and and then you came off the disappointment of last year with the elation of this year. That's right. Yeah, and this year, um, I think you know the bloodline certainly is a little bit better as far as it's got you know a lot, way more designer blood uh, than than last year's babies. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch it go through color change. I took a picture of it the other day, and I think I've noticed it's, it's already got some white specks start to come in on it. So. Uh, <laughs> What, what was weird is that, you know, this one, the albino, if you look at the whole clutch together, it's actually the darkest baby in the clutch, which is, you know, the opposite of what you would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, you look, when you look at it, it's, 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 it looks almost black, but it's really almost like a just dark purple. Um, and, you know, of course, the pink tail and the pink tongue and the, the red eyes. Um, it's really it's really weird to see the picture of a uh, of a dark red animal sticking out a white tongue. I mean, it's 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 very odd looking. Yeah, and you know, it, to see it start to change color like it has, you know, kind of makes me think that maybe we're gonna uh, you know learn quite a bit about how chondros change color with this animal because. You think about it, you know, in, in all snakes, albinism really is is not a true albino like it is in, 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 you know, humans or mammals. It's basically just a lack of black pigment that we call albino. And for that snake to be almost black when it's lacking, you know, or supposed to be lacking black pigment is, is just is weird. It's just, yes. just a weird thought to me, you know. And uh, so then to... To see it, to see this white starting to creep in on it, especially so early. I mean, it's only it's like three or four meals in, and they're you know he's, he might be two months old. I'm calling it a he, but I, you know obviously I don't know yet. But um, it makes me wonder if all dark babies, you know, because in the Calico line and in the Versace line, all of the neonates tend to go through this black phase uh, where you know they they get some degree of, of black speckling on them. Some of them are solid black, and some of them, you know, kind of fades out. Some of them, they keep it, kind of like Greg was saying earlier. You just never really know from looking at them. But, you know, it makes you wonder if they all kind of start getting that black really early and you just don't notice it because, you know, the babies are usually so dark. Um, and on this one, if that starts to come in as white, it's going to go through a really incredible color change. Well, cannot wait to see it. I know. Uh, I know you're peeking in there at least a couple times a day. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> I'm trying to trying to leave them alone, but uh, you know, just treat it like every other snake in the room. But it, it's yeah, difficult. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, Marshall. Listen, I can't thank you enough for calling in and give us an update on the project. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Greg, take it easy, man. Good to to talk to you. You too, Marshall. Best of luck with the future on this project. I can't wait to see some adults. Thanks. Yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, I'm raising up a couple more females, and uh, I've got one more that will be ready to go next year that's still uh, uh, an unproven possible heck. So uh, hopefully here in the next couple of years we'll we'll, uh, make that happen. Keep my fingers crossed. Thanks again, Marshall. Okay, guys. Talk to you later.
Uh, hey, Greg. Uh, hey, Greg, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we're well into the overtime on the show. Do you have a few minutes left into your schedule sure, or yeah. do you need to, do you need to get going? No, I'm good. Uh, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your the Condro husbandry. We have, uh, I think, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show, one of Buddy and I's missions were really to to grow and and to promote the Condro community. And so I know I just know from uh, personal friends of mine, uh, we've got some newer keepers that are listening that are fascinated by the uh, the, the history of, of Condros, but uh, they would love to hear from somebody that's been so successful in in keeping and producing chondros, you know, just uh, some of your bread and butter uh, husbandry techniques. Would you mind sharing some of that with us? No, that, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I guess, you know, like, like what specifically do you think people would be interested in hearing? Because, well, I, mean, I think, um, to me, you know, the, the, I, I've been over this so much that it all seems like common ground to me, and I know it's not to a lot of people. What what are the what areas you sure. think people are most interested or need to hear? You know, I think there's probably three or four basic uh, things, and and I, I guess the first one would be caging. And um, so maybe your thoughts on the best way to keep. Uh, let's say you're getting your first chondro, and it's a well-established baby. What uh, you know, maybe it's had 10 or 15 meals, it's captive born, it's it's doing great, and, and it's your first uh, baby chondro. What would be your recommendation in, in how to keep that animal? Uh, I don't think that you can beat a plastic tub system for raising babies and yearlings, whether that's a, a multiple tub rack. And I, I know it's it always sounds impractical to talk to a person who only has one animal, maybe it's their first animal, uh, about right. getting a rack because, you know, they, they only need one tub. They don't need 15 sure. or 20. And, right. uh, of course, you know, I always tell them, well, just wait a few years. You're going to need them. You can build a tub system, you know, for just one one tub. You know, you can build an enclosure for it, put, you know, a heat, heat pad or heat tape under sure. it, but um, the main thing with that I found with babies and yearlings is, you know, you want to keep them well hydrated and humid, you know, not soaking wet, but, uh-huh. but humid, and they they seem to be more sensitive to that than, uh, you know, young adults and adults, uh, especially babies, you know, get into a lot of trouble with stuck sheds and things if they're not kept, you know, in a really good humid environment. And I can tell you from just personal experience with one clutch, it's very hard to tell when yellow babies are in in their shed cycle. It is very difficult. So basically you just keep them humid the whole time, and then you won't have to worry about uh, increasing humidity during the shed cycle. Exactly. I always kept my babies in shoebox-sized plastic tubs with newspaper substrate. Okay. And the nice thing about uh, the newspaper substrate, you know, is that it, it holds and wicks water vapor into the atmosphere aided by the heat tape underneath causing it, you know, to evaporate. And because there's relatively small amount of air exchange in a rack system, you know, it's adequate for the animals, but it's it's relatively small. 
you you end up with a system that holds humidity pretty well over a 24-hour period. And I would always miss the newspaper bottom in my baby tubs once a day, every day, 365 days a year, whether they were in shed or not. Okay. And, uh, you know, by the time you get them to yearling size, you know, you move them to a larger tub. Of course, when you, you're dealing with a larger volume of air mass, it's a little becomes increasingly more difficult to humidify, you know, the airspace the larger it becomes. But you can still do an adequate job of it. I, I used to house my yearlings in three-gallon size tubs and worked out real well. And by the time they outgrew those, I was putting them into a small adult cage. Okay. And and what, what kind the, of temperature? Uh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was I was just going to say in, in in temperatures along you know uh, along with those the humidity what what kind of temperatures uh, would you keep uh, the baby and subadult in? Uh, you know, I would say you know seventy eight to eighty six that range. I always like to provide a gradient if possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I were to do, you know, something differently just to try it, uh, if I were, you know, to get back into the breeding chondros again or if I still were, maybe experiment with humidifying and heating an entire baby room instead of doing each individual tub. Yeah. Uh, I, I, right. You know, just something to try. Um, maybe easier, you know, maintenance that way. Um, but... In all of my cages, whether it was an adult cage or a baby shoebox or anything in between, I would always provide some kind of gradient. And I noticed that for the most part, all my animals, regardless of age, usually would seek out temperatures around the 84 degree range, 83, 85, something like that. Uh, occasionally they would like it cooler, occasionally they would like it warmer, but they always seem to gravitate toward that as an average. Okay. And uh, in feeding frequency, uh, how how often should you be feeding a, a baby to a subadult chondra? I would feed babies every seven to ten days, and then after they were well established, and by that I mean they've had ten to twelve meals, and it's no longer a chore to get them to take food. I would feed them once a week, just because it was easy to, you know, know when feeding day was and know how many right. meals they'd had a month and, and all that. Um, and I would follow that regimen pretty much up until animals got to be small adult size. I I do tend to think we, we overfeed chondras a little bit sometimes, um, especially older animals that have slower metabolism and, you know, they're obviously of, you know, real good weight, um, I just I don't think they need necessarily to eat as often as we feed them. Certainly not weekly, uh, yes, or maybe feed them weekly, but a much reduced meal size than than you know what they're capable of eating. And I noticed, especially with my females, once I started reducing the meal size and feeding about every ten or twelve days, I started having uh, an elimination of tail hanging problems and. Um, you know, more frequent defecations. You feed a, an adult female a, a you know, medium-sized rat once a week, and I've had females that only defecated once every three months. And, wow. You know, just, and then when they did, it was huge. And, of course, you're always yeah. worried about prolapse. Prolapse, and, right. Uh, 
you know, I, my personal opinion is that most prolapses, not all, because there's always exceptions, and, you know, you're always going to get one, and you're like, what did I do wrong, and you didn't do anything wrong. But, but for the most part, I think uh, prolapses are related more to lethargy and overfeeding and poor muscle tone than they are, you know, other husbandry issues, which maybe sometimes get blamed. Um, I think when when the animal just tends to you know sit in a cage and not move around and doesn't have really good muscle tone and it's overfed, I, I think that leads to you know prolapse issues and tail hanging and you know a swollen uh, intestinal area even if it's not accompanied by prolapse. I had one female that for most of her life would trail the rear third of her body down off the perch and lay it on the floor of the cage or in the water bowl. And it looked like yep. she had to defecate all the time, although, you know, she she only defecated once every month or two. And so I found when I started feeding, like, barely weaned rat pups to even my biggest chondros and decreased meal frequency that they still maintained pretty much the same weight, but... They defecated more often, and they were more active. You know, there's nothing wrong with an animal searching around looking for food. Right, right. There's, uh, you know, there's been a big push, and Buddy, Buddy could tell you uh, better than I could here recently to to really feed those chondros less, uh, to, to to have them hungry, you know, almost constantly hungry, um, and and. And I was wanted to ask you this, Greg. A lot of people now are saying that that feeding mice is is a superior food product than feeding rats. And uh, I know you. I think you were primarily uh, a rat feeder to your chondros, weren't you? Mice for babies and yearlings, and then I would switch them over to rat pups when they were big enough for rat pups. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't really speak with any authority as to you know, whether mice would be better or why mice would be better, but I can tell you one thing for sure, and that is any time I would feed a pregnant adult mouse to a chondro, I shouldn't say any time, but frequently, um, I would get the snake regurging. Really? And I have no idea why, because it was entirely capable of swallowing the meal size, and, you know, it wasn't any, any bigger in weight or bulk than a rat pup, but I noticed a correlation uh, between feeding pregnant mice and regurgitation to the point where I stopped doing it. Wow. That's interesting. Very interesting. Mm. Yeah, uh, and I can as, tell you this. You know, chondros don't eat rats or mice, you know, in the wild. So I'm not sure right. what the rationale behind saying that one or the other is better. You know, you are what you eat. And I think if you're feeding your rodents, uh, a good nutritious uh, food, you know, whether it's lab chow or whatever, you know, then the animals, I mean, I certainly didn't have any problems over, you know, a 15-year uh, time of, of keeping mine, uh, feeding them primarily rats. Right, probably more an issue of uh, if there's going to be a problem, it's an overfeeding issue, whether it's an oversized prey or over frequency of a meal. Right. Yep. Excellent. Um, maybe we could uh, delve into some some pearls you may have for for breeding chondros, Greg. Um, again, uh, you know, you could probably talk about this for hours, but 
in a nutshell, maybe could you describe uh, how you cycled your animals and what maybe you thought were the the most important aspects of uh, of breeding chondros? Sure, um, I would I would use the natural fall and winter temperatures with cycling my animals. I lived in Ohio the entire time I was working with chondros, so our temperatures would start to drop in, usually in September or October to the point uh, where, you know, I could, I like to get my, my animals down into the, uh, the 60s at night. And so I would, I would crack my basement window and I sort of just developed an instinct and a feel for how cold it was going to be that night as to how much I had to open the window. And, you know, it's, it's not an exact science. Um, you're not going to kill your animals if you get them a little bit too chilly one night. You know, there's fluctuations in nature. Sure. Um, but gen- generally, I I would like to drop my animals down into the low 60s most of the time. And, um, you know, you want to use, obviously, mature animals, good-conditioned animals. Um you're talking great Beyond, about your ambient temp- you're talking about your ambient temperatures being in the low 60s but would you provide uh, a, a heat source on top of that so they had an ambient temperature of 60 but they could have a heat spot of, of uh, in the 70s or you just completely turn off supplemental uh, heat in the cage I would have uh, timers uh, in all my cages that would completely turn the heat source off. At, okay, at night, at night so time. like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and then would turn it back on at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. And okay. I, would, I would ease my way into that. You know, I might do it sure. for three or four hours for a week and then five or six hours and work my way up to 12. Okay. And uh, I would always provide, you know, a normal cage ambient gradient of, you know, 85 to 88 uh, during the daytime, always. Okay. Okay, um, great. Just drop that temperature at night. Okay. Perfect. And beyond that, you know, um, it's just working with adequate numbers of animals. You know, when you when you when you pair up, I, I would say on average, when if you're going to pair up, you know, a half a dozen animals, you're going to be fortunate to get one or two good clutches. Now. Okay. There are going to be years when you're going to be more fortunate and you're going to get more than that, and there may be years when you pair up eight animals and you get one clutch. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and, you know, there's got to be answers to that. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what, you know, strides have been made in that, if any, since I've been out of it. But, um, you know, I had animals that would breed and produce great one time and then another time not do anything. Um, you just well, Greg, I, you never I, I know. can just tell you, I can tell you from personal uh, experience breeding carpet pythons. It seems like my years are all or nothing. I will have certain years where every female in my room will go, and I'll have other years where n- nobody will. It's 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 very in my conditions will be, uh, you know, I've got a very stringent, I've got a dedicated room, and I, you know, I try to follow the same protocol year after year. For whatever reason, it, it seems to be all or nothing. It's just uh, you, you just can't control it. Yeah, it does really seem to be cyclical like that, and you know who knows why. Um, one rule of thumb that I I learned 
to do was to try to pair up animals after the female had shed. Um, <laughs> because with with breeding chondros, you know, you're looking for that pre-lay shed, which follows follicle development and ovulation. And uh, there's nothing so disappointing as to have a, a really nice male and female copulating like crazy for three or four weeks and then have the female go opaque. And she obviously hasn't ovulated yet. Uh, right. That's pretty much, right. you know, it's kind of like rebooting the whole thing. You're back to square one. And I have had animals that went back to breeding again and successfully produced. Um, but I always, uh, after a while, I learned I, I just would wait to pair animals up until after the female shed. That way I know that, uh, you know, that next shed is either going to be the pre-lay shed or the pairing hasn't been successful. Well, right. that's that's interesting. Yeah, very. That's very uh, very useful information. Greg, did you uh, the, when you were cycling your animals for breeding? Did you did you continue to feed the females, or did you just withhold food the entire time uh, the the animals were paired together? No, I would always uh, offer food to both animals. Vast okay. majority of the time, males would go off feed. Sometimes, even before you start to cycle them, when it gets to be that time of year, maybe because of the photo right. period shortening, um, the females would normally continue to eat. Um, sometimes, I would feed the animals in the same cage and just be very careful. Other times, I would separate them. Um, separation and reintroduction can be great because I would have animals that would copulate. You know three, four, or five times over a two- or three-week period, and then stop. And I would separate right. them for a week, feed the female, put them back together, you know, bang, more copulations. So, you know, um, there, there's probably some merit to the idea that the, the act of copulation stimulates the female to begin producing follicles. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff's hard to prove because one pair does one thing and another pair does a different thing, and you don't really know. Right. But, uh, you know, trying to breed animals, copulating is a real good thing to see. So, yeah, you just you want to encourage them to keep breeding as much and as long as they will. Um, every once in a while I would pair up animals and the male would show no interest in the female at all. And I would substitute a different male after maybe three weeks or so of that. And sometimes the new male would be all over the female and sometimes the second male would ignore her. Hmm. So just sometimes you have to experiment around and uh, try to let the animals dictate to you what they want to do and sort of roll with it. Yeah, it, It's all about uh, reading and knowing your animals, isn't it? I mean, that's why you can't just expect to, to you know, to get uh, adult animals in and just uh, have them breed and, and be successful. You, you have to know your know your animals. You do. You have to. You have to watch them, and uh, you know. Again, because I was doing it full time, I had the luxury of being able to watch my animals around the clock. And um, I would frequently get up in the middle of the night during breeding season and go down, you know, with a flashlight and just check <laughs> on breeding activity, see which pairs were courting, which pairs were copulating, and you know, just what was going on. And so, I'm not saying that, you know. Certainly, that type of you know activity on the part of the breeder doesn't make anything happen. But you just you really get in tune with the animals and what's going on with them, and sometimes that helps you make good decisions. And then you right. look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. The um you know, when you were when you paired animals and were you you know, did did you think you know, when you're doing your pairings and you plan pairings for the year, were you trying to to keep phenotypes together, like were you doing high blue to high blue and yellow high yellow to high yellow? Or were you you know, did you occasionally like, okay, let's see where this will go if we maybe take a high yellow male and put it with a blue female. Did did you ever do any of the you know, that that type of breeding or did you kinda of stay true to you know, keeping the high blues together and keeping the high yellows together and keeping the calicos together. Yeah, I, I, as a general rule, try to allow my my breeding projects to follow, you know, my my morph breeding goals. So normally what I would do is I'd, I'd start to, you know, start thinking seriously about it in, you know, August or September. Um, you know, because by that time, you know, I, I know... Uh, you know, which animals are in breeding condition, if, you know, an animal's had a health issue that year and I want to, you know, take it out of the rotation for that year for some reason, I know that. So by by that time of year, I, I know, you know, what animals are going to be in the breeding pool. And I would sit down with a legal pad and I would write down all of the females, you know, in a column down the left side of the page, all my available breeding females. And... Right. Then I would go through my list of available males, and I would try to make intelligent choices based on past success with that male, maybe with that same female or with a similar female, uh, or maybe I would say, okay, that clutch really didn't meet expectations. I'm going to try, you know, something different, but still within, you know, the general idea of what I was shooting for. Uh, very seldom would I just take you know, a male and a female and put them together just to see what would happen. Um, Sometimes that might happen toward the end of my main breeding period if a particular male or a particular female that I really wanted to get offspring from hadn't done anything and I had an available pair and I would stick them together. But that was was more or less a a last resort sort of a thing and it didn't happen very often. Most of the time I would... I would stick with projects. I even had people, you know, that would ask me. They would email me or call me and say, hey, you know, why don't you breed, you know, the computer chondro or, you know, this male or that male to this and see what would happen. And I would say, well, because, you know, I'm trying to maintain, I'm trying to outcross and keep the bloodline fresh while at the same time improving the, the color traits that I'm going for. So okay. it wouldn't make sense to me, for example, to breed um, a calico male with a blue animal. And I'm not saying if somebody wants to do that, they're wrong. I'm just giving you my personal philosophy. It wouldn't make sense to me to do that because I'm I'm kind of like mixing apples and oranges. Um, it, it, you know, it takes, as I mentioned earlier tonight, it takes a long time to verify a project. And right. me, random experimenting around just lengthens the amount of time that you really have good data that you can use. So for me, I just, I always tried to stick with projects. So I always had my, you know, high yellow group and my high blue group and my calico group and my melanistic group and then a few random animals I didn't really know what to do with but were pretty. 
and I would try <laughs> to match those up with similar-looking animals that maybe weren't an identified project, but, you know, like I might have a couple of Beoc, you know, type-looking animals that weren't really high yellow, but they were pretty, and I just wanted to see what they would do. But but still, they were still similar in appearance. Right. Okay. Good to know. Now, you, we already Rick, talked about... Go ahead, go ahead buddy. No, you, uh, oh, I was just going to ask him, um, I wanted to kind of talk to him about uh, inc- some incubation uh, techniques, because yeah, I know he was... Definitely. He was a pioneer. He was a pioneer in, uh, you know, okay, you've bred these chondros and 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 now you're faced with eggs and and what do you do with them? Um, so maybe you could spend just a minute. Uh, Greg, did you ever experiment with maternal incubation at all? Did you ever let um, mothers incubate their babies? I did. Uh, I used maternal incubation for the first uh, whole two or three years. And uh, I, I commented in my book that maternal incubation is a lot like milk. Uh, it's either really good or it's really bad. <laughs> and, uh, it can spoil quickly, huh? Yes. And, you know, I've already shared, you know, the, the, my story of my initial attempt with it, uh, which was a total bust. Uh, but then right. the following year, I had a nearly 100% successful hatch with it. So, uh, you know, it's fascinating to watch. Um, I would personally encourage any green tree python breeder to use maternal incubation at least once or twice just to experience it. Okay. Uh, if I were going to do it, I would probably do it with a a more sturdy outcross bloodline rather than uh, you know one of the, the more delicate bloodlines that tends to have a you know a tendency of infertility or issues with it. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating product uh, project to to watch and to participate with, and you learn a lot about what your eggs are supposed to look like by watching the mom do it. Mm, okay. But uh, yeah, I uh, I began to experiment with a couple of different artificial incubation techniques, and um, you know I did I did pioneer some things with my work with Conrad, but I'm not really comfortable being able to pioneer with incubation techniques because mostly what I did was just adapted things that other people had already been using uh, to my own equipment and maybe changed something a little bit that I thought would make it easier or whatever, but I didn't actually, you know, break any ground uh, per se. I just processes that worked really well for me. Um, I used the method that Trooper and Eugene were using uh, when I first started to experiment with artificial incubation, and that was to set the eggs up over top of dry sphagnum moss inside of a clear one-gallon jar. And I did have a uh, successful hatch with that method. I also had a couple of clutches go bad. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I, I just found that that method has a really low tolerance for error, at least the way I was applying it. it's what, For what I could tell, I was doing it identical to you know, what Trooper and Eugene were. Um, right. And it's, I think it's important to say that with any incubation technique, your technique and your incubator becomes something that you just get really, really familiar with. And, right. you know, I, I call it the coyote syndrome. Remember the roadrunner and the coyote? 
<laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, maybe I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that cartoon. I remember it. But I always, sure. I always got, got frustrated watching that because I'm like, <laughs> man, if that coyote would stop jumping from thing to thing and just take one of them and refine it, he would have success. And that's kind of the way it is with chondro eggs. You know, um, I experimented with three or four different things. I, I latched onto one that seemed to be the most successful for me and the easiest to do, which uh, was the, the water substrate method or the no substrate method, as it's sometimes called. And that method, had, yeah. uh, I think it was actually first used in Europe. And um, it had been used by a couple of breeders in the United States here and there. Um, Trooper was the person who used the setup similar to the one I ended up using uh, where I got my idea for it. And uh, he used deli cups for his eggs. I ended up putting my eggs all in one container um, because I I found that I liked the dynamic of how the humidity worked and everything when the clutch was all kept together in a group as opposed to dividing them up and, you know, three or four or five eggs in individual cups. Um, so we, we differed slightly, but basically the, the basic premise was the same. You suspend the eggs over water on some type of a grid, a plastic but grid, and uh, in think a sealed container. Yeah, I think it's safe to say it's the uh, it's the backbone of, of con- not only chondro, but really uh, all certainly the vast majority of the carpet community and, and I think the ball python community now are using that incubation method. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, uh, once, once you have your incubator set up, tuned up, and, and you, you know what the eggs are supposed to look like and you know what to do if they start to get a little too dry or a little too humid, it's a pretty easy system. And generally, once you have the kinks worked out and you have good clutches, you get really high hatch rates with it. And the nice thing about that is if you have a clutch go bust, you know that it wasn't something you did wrong. You know it was, it was just a weak clutch. Yep, right, yep. But I've hatched out chondros in, in you know, the phylogical services jar method. I've used vermiculite. I've used maternal incubation. I've used the, the no-substrate water method. And, you know, they'll all work. Um, some people, you know, like one over another, and, and I think it's just, you know, what people have initial success with, they tend to stick with. And, right. you know, certainly nothing wrong with that. Nope, not at all. If it works, stick with it. Yeah. Yep. You tweak it. Uh, Greg, yeah, I'm really surprised after your first uh, maternal incubation didn't turn out that you actually tried it again. <laughs> I've, I've never done maternal <laughs> well, incubation. I, and it's stories honestly, like yours. I didn't know what else to do at it. that point. Right. I mean, again, you know, it's uh, with the with the abundance of information and, you know, my books and other people's, you know, articles and websites and everything. There's a ton of information. When I first started hatching chondro eggs, literally the only thing you had was a phone call to Trooper. <laughs> and Trooper, you know, was, was helpful, but... As often as not, he would tell me, Greg, I can't really tell you without seeing what you're doing. And, you know, he wasn't trying to blow me off. He was being honest. And, you know, I've, I've been that reality myself, trying to, you know, coach people over the phone to feeding neonates for the first time or, you know, hatching out eggs for the first time. It's really hard without seeing what they're doing to, to give, 
information, but, you know, that's, that's all I had was, you know, trooper and the phone and trying to work out a few kinks. And so, um, you know, I knew that the trooper and Eugene were hatching out eggs with the jar method. The trooper had already told me that, you know, it was difficult. The parameters for the temperature and humidity were extremely tight. And at the time, I, I didn't own some of the equipment that I later, you know, purchased, such as a thermocouple thermometer with probe system or a, or a Raytech gun and some of the things that make it a little bit easier. And so I basically used maternal incubation because I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, you know after two or three successful hatches with it, you know, I got the confidence to, to try some other things. And so I... I started to experiment with the jar method, which, you know, I had mixed success with. Then I used vermiculite, which I had good success with, but didn't really like how it worked. Uh, I didn't like how the vermiculite got stuck all over the babies when they came out. And uh, I found that the the eggs tended to swell up uh, too much if the, the substrate was just slightly overly moist, and yet they desiccated very quickly if it was slightly dry. So I, I found right. it to be kind of touchy, although it did work for me. I hatched out my first clutch of, uh, or no, my second clutch of calico eggs in 2001 were hatched under vermiculite. So, yeah, I began to get, get confidence in my equipment, my technique, and, you know, I knew other people were doing it, and I figured if they could do it, I could do it. So just sort of felt my way through it, ended up with a system that worked really well that I got very familiar with. Yeah, and it can be, uh, it's very nerve-wracking, too, to try to figure out your own system, you know, because you, yeah. like you said, you're, you're you know, you're there, you're the one observing the eggs and trying to figure out what's going on and, and you know, should I do this or should I do that? My first uh, chondro egg, uh, my first chondro hatch, um, I'd always hatched pythons on vermiculite. And I'd never stared at eggs as much as I had with my first chondro clutch. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, would put eggs in the incubator, and I would come back and, you know, occasionally check them. But it was like with chondro eggs, I felt like I was staring at them three or four times a day. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I did initially start the, with the uh, no-substrate method and never having experienced eggs, you know, the the, the eggs weren't desiccated, but they were, you know, doing their normal denting in. Completely freaked me out. So I, I took the eggs and I put them on vermiculite. And they pumped back up, and they all hatched. But then later, you know, talking with other other more experienced folks, like, no, 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 they're supposed to do exactly what <laughs> they were doing. They didn't need to move them to vermiculite. They would have probably all hatched fine. Um, and it was just my inexperience with never with only using vermiculite as a as a substrate with other python eggs and never seeing a you know none of those eggs ever dented in ever but once you get used to sure. seeing those eggs dented in and and like Greg like you said I think you say in your book it looks like nothing that could be alive in that egg there, there, I don't even know what would be in there and then sure enough the baby hatches out so right take some experience. That's why it's so and, helpful and, and, to do maternal incubation at least once or twice because, you know, when you when you see those eggs kind of, you know, shriveled up and dented in inside the mom's coils with baby heads sticking out of them, you're like, okay, so, yeah, that's what they're supposed to look like. Yep, yep. No it's substitute just, for experience, that's for sure. No. Right, exactly. 
Well, gentlemen, it is an hour past our scheduled <laughs> recording end time. Um, buddy, I know it's it's very late where you are. Uh, Greg, are you where where are you calling from, Greg? Uh, Kansas City, Missouri. So it's uh, it's almost. So you're 11. central. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. So you're central time. Uh, Greg, was there anything like else? To, uh, if we've got got a, got a minute or two, I, I would like to uh, add one more comment before we close tonight. Sure, of course. And I think it, I think it's because a lot of people would like to know. It's probably the number one thing I get asked nowadays is, you know, why did I get out of Condros and and would I ever consider getting back into them again? And, yes, uh, excellent. Um, the first thing I want to I want to say is, you know, there's a difference between a hobby and a business. And I don't think one is superior to the other, but they're just different. And when you are, you know, relying on paying the bills, feeding your family, paying your mortgage from breeding green tree pythons, and that's all you do, no other species, no other, you know, income, um, you guys just, you know, from your experience of working with Conros, know how stressful that can be. Uh, you know, you never know whether you're going to have a great year or a bad year, and takes a lot of work over a year's time to cycle and breed and hatch and feed, market, ship, all that stuff. So um, I was a commercial breeder for 13 consecutive years, and frankly, I was ready for a break and, and ready to do something a little bit different. Um, when I was approached in 2009 uh, from an individual who wanted to buy the business from me, I had it started to think maybe about selling it at some point anyway. Um, it wasn't on the front burner, but it, it was a topic that had come up in my home. And uh, I'm kind of a person who likes a challenge. And uh, breeding chondros for 13 years and keeping them for 15 is probably the longest thing that I've ever done any one thing in my life, longest period of time. Um, so, you know, I was ready for some new challenges and was, was ready for a change. And, and I was really ready to step out of having to rely on whether my chondras were going to produce well enough or not for me to pay the bills with it. And so um, I, I made the decision after a long discussion with my wife and thinking about it for a while to, to sell the business and... Uh, that's that's sort of how that came about. It's not because I lost interest in the animals or uh, you know anything like that. Um, right. It was just kind of a, a natural progression for me to build up the business and then and then sell it. Um, I, I miss the people. I miss the animals a lot, but I don't miss you know being connected to a large collection of living animals that require my constant oversight. I, I love being able to come and go and travel a little bit, do other things in life. I've got uh, four grandkids now and another one on the way. My wife and I frequently travel. Oh, thank you. My wife and I frequently travel from Kansas City back to Ohio to spend time with our kids and grandkids. And, you know, so we, we spend time on the road. So I, I really enjoy the freedom a lot of not having a collection of live animals, probably for the first time in my, my life since I was about, you know, 10 or 11 years old. Right. Uh, not have to have to take care of. So, um, yeah, I just, I wanted to explain that to people because a lot of people, you know, wondered about it. It shocked a lot of people when I announced I was getting out of it. And 
Right. I'm sure there's been a lot of speculation. So, yeah, it wasn't, it was not uh, a loss of love for the animals as much as it was just, you know, time for me to make a change and really sort of to get out of the stress of doing it for a living as a business. Right. Well, Greg, I, I, I couldn't pretty, imagine pretty, the stress yeah. of doing that well, to pretty feed obvious. your family and pay your mortgage. It's, uh, I can't even imagine what. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.